So it's 1982 and I'm five years old at home one afternoon and leafing through the records in the cabinet in our den. Among all of their Frank Sinatra, Barbra Streisand, Glenn Campbell, and Carpenter's albums was a record I had been listening to over and over, specifically the third song on side two. I put the record on the turntable, dropped the needle, and heard the drum beat, followed by a screaming guitar that would start me on the road to becoming a rock and roll fan. The group sang to someone about how they were a heartbreaker, a dream maker, a love taker, and I shouldn't mess around with them. It would be several years until I learned that the song was written and recorded by Pat Benatar, who came from Lindenhurst, Long Island, about 30 minutes to the west of my parents' house. Of course, Pat Benatar's original is definitive, but when I was five years old, the version for me was recorded by Alvin and the Chipmunks for their album Chipmunk Rock. I own three other Alvin and the Chipmunk records, The Chipmunks Go Hollywood, which was full of soundtrack songs, Urban Chipmunk, which was country, and a Chipmunks Christmas album. They were an early influence and introduced me to songs that I'd have in my music collections years later. Eye of the Tiger, Fame, On the Road Again, Hit Me With Your Best Shot, Jesse's Girl, and Whip It. And trust me, you have not heard Devo until you have heard the Chipmunks cover Devo. The rest of my youth would follow a similar pattern. Cover songs making their way into my life, leading to me eventually seeking out the originals. New Edition covering Earth Angel on the Karate Kid 2 soundtrack. Marty McFly shredding his way through Johnny B. Good. Maverick and Goose singing You've Lost That Love and Feeling in a bar, and Tiffany belting out I Think We're Alone Now in a mall. And, of course, not one, but two covers of Baby I Love Your Way. So it was only a matter of time before I did an episode devoted to cover songs, and here it is. This is Pop Culture Affidavit. So like I said, welcome to Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that covers everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this episode is the first of a two-part crossover with another show, Fire and Water Records, which you can hear over on the Fire and Water Network. And with me for this show are the hosts of that one, two gentlemen who have opinions on music, stories about music, and will be spending the next three and a half hours with me debating what is the best version of Louie Louie. Please welcome Ryan and Neil, the brothers daily. How are you guys doing? Yeah. Oh boy, do we have opinions. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan puts the I in opinion. <laughs> I have been, I have been so happy to see this show come back. <laughs> so <laughs> We've been just... having to bring it back. Yeah. 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 So yeah. So um, I had, I had suggested this a while ago and we've been, we were talking off air before we started recording about um, just the sheer 
mass of the list that we've compiled and we've we've been narrowing it down and stuff like this. So the three of us have have a relationship with cover songs, which I'm sure that a lot of people of the in this uh, audience do. So I guess my question uh, to to kind of you guys can introduce yourselves of like you know I don't know your your relationship with cover songs what you how you what you discovered first what certain things mean to you um you know certain things you like to listen to over and over or play or something like that um well first of all again thank you for having us both on the show and and like no kidding like I I know we've been talking about this for a long time but even well before that when Neil and I first started talking about Fire and Water Records several years ago when we were first on the like plotting stages we were talking about different topics and one of the first ones we came up with were favorite cover songs at least favorite cover songs mm-hmm. just kind of like debating that and it was always one of those topics that was just so damn big yeah. that it's like how do you how do you begin to wrap around it? so <laughs> i think we needed a third person to kind yeah. of even approach this to even try and attempt it it's like yeah it's it's bigger than one episode can handle yeah you're good once, once you start talking about cover songs you're going down a rabbit hole oh yeah yeah and hence the reason why this is going to be at least two episodes, and, yes. and even then, we we'll probably won't be satisfied. But yeah, um, just, we might come back to this in another year or so. Just <laughs> the annual updates. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, as we go through the list, and as, as we'll talk about our the cover songs that we have picked for these different episodes, you know, I'll get into a little bit of my history with what kind of like music getting into, but just in general being a fan of pop music and i mean that's kind of like what i grew up on and and the way pop music has changed there has always been an association with pop music and an attempt to recapture pop music which i think is what cover songs really are i mean if we're understanding kind of the, all the almost basic definition the dictionary definition is a performance of a previously written or recorded or released song um usually i i think of a, a cover as like the artist or the performers they're kind of taking a shortcut uh almost like a hack to make a connection with their, their audience mm-hmm. uh and and being perfectly honest there was a time when i was very dismissive of cover songs and neil i think we talked about it we might have been feeling the same way at one point where i kind of thought like if you're just doing cover songs it's lazy you know you're not as creative you don't know how to express yourself so you're cheating you're stealing somebody else's material especially if you're not doing anything originally with it um but over time i mean i've i taken myself less seriously so i take a lot of my opinions and my firm my <laughs> music less seriously too so i i tend to be more celebratory of these things now and i think like well okay what is the purpose of like a cover song and i i almost associate it mostly with live performances now which i'm with is something that we're not even really going to dive into but that moment what i what i was describing is like a shortcut or a hack to get into the audience and what you have because maybe the audience is on your wavelength and they're listening to your music for the first time. Maybe they have a connection with your music and maybe they don't. But if you play, if you tap into something that they are already familiar with, then they have a memory and you have a memory. And somewhere in between is a shared memory between artist and listener that based on something else some other common appreciation and love of music as a as a dynamic force and that's kind of what it is it's this a cover song is a shared memory a shared experience between 
artist and uh, and listener where they can meet in the middle and i just think that can be something really special especially like if it's if it just helps somebody appreciate their experiences more yeah i i boy ryan i mean it's a good thing we're doing this over a couple episodes because i'm gonna i'm gonna go i'm gonna dive much deeper into everything you just kind of said i've had a love-hate relationship with cover songs for a lot of times first as a fan then as a musical artist myself and then as a fan again so there's there's ups and downs and a lot of what ryan said is stuff that i'm going to talk about tonight and you know there's something but even in my more dismissive states uh you know when i was kind of a musical snob and i was writing originals and things there was still something fun about trying to catch the audience off guard with the right cover song that was always something that was you know like like in a rock show like busting out uh and ryan knows that i've chose some really off the wall cover songs like i did andy gibb you know, if, uh, you know, at a show one time. And it's just like that reaction to kind of stir the audience a little bit was a lot of fun. Um, in terms of like how I came to it, you know, to come back to your original question, Tom, it's probably a lot like Ryan. I think, you know, as, as, as Ryan knows, you know, I'm an avid reader. And I think it comes down to when Hamlet asked to cover or not to cover. That was the question. I'm pretty sure that was in one of, one of Shakespeare's plays. Yeah, it's in the first folio. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I thought. Um, but, it, you know, so as I mentioned, you know, as a musician, I've experienced the firsthand, the necessity, like the necessity for cover songs in your set. And I used to make adamant, I used to be adamant against playing cover songs because if you're as a musical artist playing in clubs in Los Angeles, playing in bars and stuff, and I'm, you know, if I'm like one of the f- four acts on a bill, you know, a lot of times your set is 35 minutes, yeah. 35, 40 minutes. So, you know, I've, it's I go you know I used to go into it with this attitude like I'm not going to waste any time not playing my own stuff why would I cover somebody else's songs and then over the course of time I realized you know when you're when you're an unknown and you're you got 35 minutes to get people into you but it's a crowded band and a lot of people are coming halfway through your set to see the next set and stuff like that it's really hard to engage in the audience when they just don't know any of your songs so you know, I learned firsthand that, you know, halfway through the set or like three quarters of the way through my set, all of a sudden you pull out journeys, don't stop believing or poisons. <laughs> every rose has its thorn. Oh my God. You instantly engage the audience again. They're automatically redrawn back to you. And then I can close out my show with a couple of my originals and things like that. And it's just, so it's, it's, like I said, it's a, it's, I, I see the necessity of it for a while. I thought it was a necessary evil. And then over time I grew to appreciate it. There were times that, you know, there was one night that I was actually tasked to play an eighties set of covers at a bar and none, no originals. It was, I was part of like four or five bands playing half hour sets and I just did an acoustic set and it was all 80 songs. And I was busting out things like, uh, Oh God, uh, summer 69 and free falling. And, you know, like just, just, I went down the list and it was probably one of the most joyous entertaining sets I've done because everybody's saying every word and there's something about that, you know, that there's, that's something that's cool. Now, last thing I'll say before we get into our lists and stuff like that, that it's, you know, that's much different than actually taking the time to record a cover song for an album or for a single or something. That's a bit trickier because for me, 
and Ryan mentioned, he alluded to this, there's, and there's plenty of people that are going to disagree with this, and that's fine. But if you're going to cover, if you're going to record, take the time to go into a studio and pay money to record somebody else's song, especially a classic hit, like yeah. you like you said, Pat Benatar, something like that. You know, I, I'm of the opinion that you either do something new and fresh with it, or you just don't do it. Because I've heard way too many covers over the years that sounded too much like the original. I would just much rather play the original. Um, and that's kind of one of the things that I've done. You know, if I've played like an acoustic version of Purple Rain to close out one of my shows before, um, it's a version that nobody's ever heard before. And that mm -hmm. always made mm -hmm. it fresh to me. And like, it's cool when you get people like maybe you're already into the verse and people are going, oh, my God, I know this song. Where do how do I know this song? But the structure of it and the format of how they're listening to it, the audio sonics of it are different until all of a sudden you get to the chorus and then you get the whole room going, oh, I know this one, <laughs> you know, and that kind of thing. So. So that's so as we go tonight, too, I, you know, you'll see there's definitely I've structured my list kind of that's my barometer for what we're going through tonight. I mean, I tried to choose things that either and, and they're not all going to be my favorites, but mm -hmm. they're going to be ones that I found fresh, interesting, unique um, or better than the original, in my, my opinion. And that's, you know, or and that usually leaves more of an impact on me. Yeah, when I think of what makes a cover song, I and by the way, it takes some serious balls to cover Prince. So, congratulations. <laughs> um, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, I, I always think of I think of the, the artist putting their own stamp on it, but in a way that doesn't like. Um, I think because I think we've all been like we're not really going to talk about bad covers because um, the, the, there's a really really low bar for that. And it's Madonna <laughs> covering American Pie, but like we've all we've all been subjected to like um, if you watched the the early years of American Idol, like the sort of overblown. I'm going to go for the Glorino version of covers. Like somebody will cover Bridge Over Troubled Water on that show, and it's just like it's like be, be back on Star Search or something. It's just like so yeah. over the top, but like putting your own stamp on it even if it's pretty close to the original, because there are a couple of, of versions that I've got on, on my list that, you know, <clears throat> are very faithful to the original, but there's something about the singer's voice or the way the band is playing it that give it a different feel that it works, mm -hmm. or in some cases that you have crossed genres with it. Mm -hmm. So you've taken an R&B hit from the 70s and you've made it rock or pop or punk or something or 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 you've done the opposite you've you know you've uh you've made something r&b or, or soul that you know you've made something rocked into r&b or soul record or something like that and um because i think that's what gets it notable you know there's because um there's a lot of places you can find covers and you're sure. right there are a lot of up-and-coming artists or bands that end up performing some sort of cover even in the studio at some point in their early career um I wonder if like when a lot of bands get big, if the two or three huge radio hits start to replace the covers into later in their set or some point in their set, because, you know, they, you, you come for, you, you go to see, uh, you go to see Counting Crows, you want to hear Mr. Jones, but they want to play half of their live album, but they'll play mm -hmm. Mr. Jones at some point, you know, that sort of thing. And if they didn't, you're like, why am I here? So, um, but yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. And, and I, I grew up, you know, I haven't been to as as many shows as as probably the two of you guys have over the years. But you know, I grew up with, with um way back in oh god, I don't remember what episode it was. It was about a year, year and a half ago. Um, I interviewed a friend of mine who was in a 
who was in a one album pop punk band in the in the mid nineties, and we talked about you know the fact that you know, our high school had a battle of the bands every year to the point <laughs> where there was almost like a mini scene. And they, I remember they always had a rule that you had to write a couple of original songs and put them in your set. But for the most part, it was all covers. So we grew up with with you know kids starting out playing their favorite songs and stuff like that. And you're right, there is a there is a connection to that and an automatic connection to the audience, especially if they can pull it off really really well. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So um, but yeah, we are. What we did was we have come up with um, each of us have come up with lists uh, of five covers that we want to talk about. Which we will get to in a little bit because we we want to get through just some just some background stuff, um, some technical stuff, I guess you could say, <laughs> and then we are going to talk about a few that are out there. And as Neil was saying, and Ryan was saying as well, we stuck to studio versions uh, mainly because as when we were planning this, we were like, if we go with live um, or unplugged versions, we're, this, is, this becomes a whole show. It doesn't. It's not just an episode or two. It's an entire podcast. But I was just thinking of like where you would find studio versions of of covers, and um, you know, aside from like just on somebody's album. But you know, just having um, you know us come of age in the in this in the soundtrack era and the CD era, and in, in many mm -hmm. cases, you did find a lot of covers on soundtracks, um, especially through the '90s. And there's a yeah. actually, there's oh, yeah. at least one on here on my list that's off of a soundtrack. Greatest hits compilations were always a was were always a favorite place to put them because um back when those were like were really a going concern, you would have an artist, the record company be like, record a couple new tracks for your greatest hits CD. Yep, yep. The bonus tracks, yeah. Yeah, the bonus tracks. And so they would they would pop out a cover of something, you know, whatever. It'd be a Don Henley did Everybody Knows by Leonard Cohen on his greatest hits album. I don't know why that's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, Bob Seger's first greatest hits album had him covering a Chuck Berry song. Um, sometimes they're the hidden track on a CD. My wife was like, are you going to talk about that Counting Crows cover of Big Yellow Taxi with Vanessa Carlton? And I explained that, and I think it's Hard Candy. I think it's Hard Candy is the CD where the, that was actually the hidden track or the track at the end of the last song. And that version didn't have her on it. So when the when that version came out on the radio, I was like, I don't remember Vanessa Carlton being this song just kind of singing bop, 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 five. <laughs> um, and of course, B-sides, right? So um, yes. yeah. the first band that comes to mind with B-side covers is, believe it or not, Metallica. Metallica had a number of B-sides that they, they covered. They covered Stone Cold Crazy. They covered So What and a bunch of other like kind of obscure metal stuff. And then, of course, um, this only applies to one artist, but I can't talk about where you would find covers without mentioning the polka medleys of one Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> some good stuff i could do a whole weird al episode anyway um but yeah talk concert. about the movie with with uh daniel radcliffe do that movie <laughs> oh god yeah um the concert and live album thing so we aren't talking about live covers but let's um you know in concerts but as we mentioned in our, i am in a friend of my notes um like award shows and honors as well as where some of these kind of make their marks 
lots of videos on YouTube and stuff. Any that jump to your mind? I I always think of stuff from like unplugged shows, like Nirvana covering the man who sold the world and and my personal favorite the 10,000 maniacs covering because the night by bruce springsteen uh neil i'll start with you first anything that jumps right off your uh right um, out to you that you think of like a live cover that you've always loved yeah there's a, there's a couple i mean uh, you know i don't want to dig too much into the live performance covers but you're absolutely mm-hmm. right that there was you know a, you mentioned i think you mentioned this to start uh, you know the hall of fame rock and roll hall of fame thing always ended up with this monster jam of classic epic rock songs and stuff like that i always thought that was cool um you know i mentioned playing purple rain before ryan you've seen this i I know for a fact you know adam levine of maroon five and the lead singer of train uh pat i can't think of his monahan monahan yes yes uh they did a version of purple rain uh for howard stern's birthday show one time Mm. and it's one of the most incredible performances including adam levine playing the guitar solo which i had no idea he was that good a guitar player that was really cool um speaking of train uh fuel and train teamed up together in the 90s for an mtv unplugged split in half the first half hour was fuel second half hour was train and at the encore they came out and did ramble on by zeppelin Uh, right and and it was just amazing. It was really, really cool. And those guys, you know, Pat Monahan can hit those Robert Plant notes. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that was that was something else. And then one of my all-time favorite live covers, uh, which we've talked about on other shows, when My Chemical Romance and The Used did uh, a version of Under Pressure from Bowie and Queen. Um, they did that live. Mm-hmm. And then they ended up going back and recording it. But they did that live at um, at, a, at a festival. Mm-hmm. Um so those are some of my favorite live performances. The last thing I also want to mention, uh, Tom, you touched on this about how, you know, I kind of came of age in the 90s when, you know, scouting records with B-sides was like an art form. It was like that became a quest, you know, going to like the the secondhand record shops because the cool indie artists didn't put all their best stuff on albums. And that was like mm-hmm. a new that was a new yeah. thing to me so you know finding the b-sides and finding those type of of tracks and then it became in vogue for a while there were a handful of artists that put out straight cover albums which i thought was really weird i think you mentioned metallica yeah metallica metallica did it poison did it uh puddle of mud did it did one it was mm-hmm. there was this thing where a bunch of bands just all of a sudden started cranking out these covers and that became that became kind of a thing and it was cool and it, it you know it you know, there are a lot of people out there listening that are going to say, like, that song is blasphemy. You can't touch that particular song, you know, and that's that's fine. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. What I will say is that every once in a while, a song that I never really cared much for the original will get a new breath of life by somebody else doing it and make me kind of be like, wow, I never really thought about it that way. That's actually a pretty good version. And then all of a sudden it gives me a certain respect for the song and whether or not the, whether or not you like the remake or not, they're getting perform, They're getting writer's royalties. So, oh, yeah. so <laughs> don't feel bad for the artist when somebody's covering it. <laughs> yeah. That Metallica album, by the way, which is the last Metallica album I ever bought was, <laughs> um, yeah, I have a history with that band, but was called Garage Inc. And it was a two yes, disc set. Right. The first disc is all of the B sides and covers that they had that were on that were the things that you had to hunt down 
at one mm-hmm. point or another, and the mm-hmm. other disc was um, all new covers. Um, it's it's still a very quality uh, CD. I think that and uh, maybe a couple of the other early ones are every once in a while I will listen to, but I grew out of Metallica years ago. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, any that pop into your head when you're talking about seeing somebody live or watching somebody on TV perform a, a, a song live? Yeah, there's a couple live ones that I do want to highlight, and then a few other genres that, that we kind of like uh, glossed over, and I'll come back to those. But sure. in terms of the the live shows, like you, you guys mentioned it, and I kind of had this in my notes too, but like any Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremonies, um, especially when they get a big jams, you know, if the entire band is not there to receive the trip because of death or some other reason, yeah. somebody's mm-hmm. not available. So uh, obviously there was the, the very famous, you can find it all over, but the um, when George Harrison was inducted as a solo performer, and there's a famous video of uh, "While My Guitar Gently Weeps" performed by <laughs> Harrison's uh, um, his 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 bandmates from uh, um, the Traveling Wilburys, Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne. But they're also joined by Steve Winwood. Um, I think two of the guys from the Heartbreakers. Mark Mann, I think, is the other guitarist from ELL with Jeff Lynn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think um, uh, I can't think of uh, one of the percussionist guys. Uh, I, ah, no, I'm forgetting somebody else. Uh, and then Donnie Harrison, George Harrison's uh, uh, yep. son is on there. But it's a famous video because <laughs> apparently, according to the legend of this thing, <laughs> Rolling Stone magazine, just before this induction ceremony performance, had put out a list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time. <laughs> Prince was not on this list. <laughs> um, and much like our other favorite goats, Michael Jordan, he kind of took it personally. personally. <laughs> <laughs> and I took so, that personally. So if you watch this performance of Wild My Guitar that gently weeps, Prince comes in at like the four and a half minute mark and just hijacks the song. Yes, he did. Steals it. You can tell at several points Tom Petty is trying to end the song and Prince is going, no, yep. no, we're done when I'm done. Yep. And he just come, just blows away and plays. And it's, it is not the most technically or sonically perfect version of that, that song, or just, but just the energy and the enthusiasm and the, the tongue in cheek F you to the critics and mm-hmm. everything. And the way the perfect flex, because when Prince ends the song, he takes his guitar, throws it up in the air, and you never see the guitar yep, come back it down. It never came down. He just walks <laughs> off the stage, too. He walks yep. off the stage. Like, no, I'm done. Yeah. yeah. So there's obviously there's, there's well, it was, right. And, and probably the most jaw-dropping moment was was seeing George Harrison's own son like sit <laughs> yeah, there just... staring at Prince in awe. Yeah. Like it'd yeah. be like, yeah, I thought we were here to honor my father, but wow. <laughs> it's like my father should be honoring Prince, but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's other there's like so many others. There's like um after Joe Strummer from the Clash died, there was a um a mashup with Bruce Springsteen and and uh, Stevie Van Zant mm-hmm. with uh Dave Grohl and Elvis Costello, um all doing London Calling. That was a great show. Um there was um for the for the induction of Nirvana, Joan Jett did "Smells Like Teen Spirit" with the rest of the band. It was great. Uh, and then if you find things like more more contemporary things like the Kennedy Center Honors 
like ceremonies a lot of times if they're inducting a band like led zeppelin you get five different groups or artists like covering their songs there's great versions by heart like nancy and oh, ann wilson so good stairway to hell one i just saw recently bruno mars singing uh so lonely by the police Ooh. when they're doing their uh the honors of sting that was a great version he had a perfect voice for that um so there's lots of other stuff like that we mentioned like howard stern anytime howard stern has some musical guests those are great a lot of times he'll get artists like chris cornell or other people to do covers yep. there's one reason one where he had harry styles and they did um, a cover of sledgehammer by peter gabriel it's a beautiful version very much very similar to the peter gabriel version but it's still a whole lot of fun um so lots of lots of things like that where you can find cover versions but um, a few other things that I wanted to mention, because there's there, there's kind of this nebulous gray area that we didn't talk about where in the 50s and 60s, like the studios had their session writers and their songwriters, mm -hmm. and they had their own catalogs. And I, I'm only so aware of this because I just recorded an episode about Burt Bacharach and Hal David and how they were writing, churning out these hits for countless numbers of like other artists but you had so many people performing those Burt Bacharach songs like if he wrote a hit it was going to be covered by five different artists and maybe Dionne Warwick is the one that everybody remembers yeah but also like with Motown when you got Holland Dozier and Holland writing you know 25 hits number one hits over the course of a decade and if an artist is signed, like don't like for don't forget like the Rolling Stones when they first broke big in the United States half of their songs they were doing like R&B hits, like covering like other songs like that Americans had written and stuff like that. And it was just, so there's, there's also that weird kind of just like crossover area where, you know, like songs are covered because they, they're just part of a studio catalog. Sure. Um, and we're yeah. not even going to get into those because those kind of, you, at some point you kind of forget who originally did this and is it a cover if you don't remember who did the original? Um, Ryan, so, Ryan, if I can jump in on that really quick, you just yeah, sure. you just triggered the memory. One of our favorite soundtracks of all time is the soundtrack to Backbeat, which was oh, yes, yeah, that's so, a good which, movie. which and when the Beatles were a garage band and they played all the the, the yeah, Little Richard, yeah. Chuck mm -hmm. Berry, like those those songs, like that kind of thing. That's one of my favorite soundtracks. Me too, me too. I love it because you got Greg Dooley from Afghan Wigs and Twilight yeah. Singers, and then Dave Perner from Soul Asylum. They're the two guys doing the vocals, and yeah, yeah. Yeah, my parents yeah, no, I, yeah. on the same tip my parents were huge fans of the movie the commitments and played that soundtrack oh, sure. to yeah. Yeah, a lot yeah um, yeah, yeah. yeah i would also mention because this i i watched a great episode of a netflix documentary series called this is pop about the brill building in new york city which was where like lieber and stoller i believe and simon and garfunkel came out of there and carol king who is responsible for who who wrote will you still love me tomorrow had somebody else had a huge hit with it and then she put it on tapestry you know so she's covering her own song that was <laughs> so but you're right about that a few other so a few other just two other things i wanted to mention one for better or worse for good or ill glee actually yeah. produced some some decent cover songs yes um they i mean they they recorded they released version every song they did on the show so you're talking about like a hundred a hundred songs a season they yeah. put them all out there some of them yeah some of them okay that was kind of interesting every once in a while there's like a diamond in the rough where you're like that was actually an incredible song yeah um mm -hmm. just like to to release <laughs> as is but neil one that you reminded me of and i completely forgot about this but getting back to time because you were talking about um 
those shows like um, American Idol and stuff like that. Yes. In the early 2000s, there was, uh, Neil, what was it? Um, what was the, the super band that they were trying to... Oh, to Rockstar create? Supernova. Rockstar Supernova with Dave Navarro, Tommy Lee... And Jason the, Newstead from okay. Metallica. Metallica. Yeah, After and they were forming a super band called Supernova, yep. and they it, the whole show was an audition to get their lead singer. Yep. Okay. And the guy who did not win, but Neil and I decided, <laughs> we're, we're fighting about this, because one of the penultimate episodes, a guy named yes. Ryan Starr. Oh, my God. The, the I know, I know the song episode, you're going to pick. The topic of this episode was like, Pick just go somewhere unorthodox. Do something that you wouldn't expect. And again, you're you're projecting like this is the audition to be the lead singer of this monster rock band with Tommy Lee and Dave Navarro. Mm-hmm. And this guy comes out. He covers "Losing My Religion," but he does it as this haunting, quiet piano ballad. It's just him with yep. a piano, single and, spotlight uh, above him. Like the stage mm-hmm. is completely dark, single spotlight above him. Yeah. And like this, like the entire audience, the entire show was caught completely off guard. It's like a slap in the face. Like, wow. You can to, hear a to pin have the drop. Balls to try something like that. Yeah. And then to take it a completely different direction. And I think when Tommy Lee was like, because of course this is where his mind goes, he's like, you are so getting laid tonight, dude. Like, <laughs> he's like, that was amazing. Like, I can um, hear him so, saying that too. Yeah. So, but that, like, that was, I, I mean, I remember watching that show and being like, Wow, yeah, that is a cover song. Yes, that is taking something so popular and so identifiable and twisting it on its head and putting a personal spin on it. And the ambition of that that's yeah. that is one of the things that I really love is when a car co- when a cover song has ambition. Yep, and we'll talk a little bit about some of that because some songs we'll find don't always have that, but they can mm-hmm. survive on the merits, and but some try and, and fall flat, but yeah. 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 Um, Tom, before we real quick, before we get into our list, just let mm-hmm. me point out, and this just kind of dawned on me, um, another place where people are discovering cover songs nowadays, there's been over the last 10, 5, 10 years, there's been this rise of uh, teenagers' home recording studios. Like, mm-hmm. everybody seems to have them now, and it's given birth to a lot of, you know, teenage artists you know ele- you know well not elementary age but like you know the the 12 to 16 year old kids that are in their bedroom with professional demo sounding recordings of great 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 material and it's really really neat that you can almost find if you go if, if anybody goes on youtube mention a song cover and you'll find it. You'll find multiple versions of it. And there's this like wealth and breadth of people doing acoustic covers, piano covers, stuff. And a lot of them sound very professional. Yeah. And a lot of those are coming out of TikTok as well. Um, yep. you, you yeah. Find it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, great points all around to add to the award show Hall of Fame stuff, just things that were on my list um, that always stood out to me. Um, the posthumous induction of uh, this was 1999 Bonnie Raitt covering runaway by Del Shannon is it's this bluesy cause it's Bonnie Raitt. It's this bluesy take on the song that I remember really distinctly and runaway is one of my favorite songs. I just absolutely love that song. Um, Melissa Etheridge and Joss Stone. And you forget that Joss Stone was even there because Etheridge <laughs> blew her off the stage at the Grammys. They were covering, uh, you know, Another piece of my heart by Big Brother, the Holding Company, and Janis Joplin, and this was like I think it was the, it was a poignant cover too because Etheridge had been I think she had just wrapped up 
um, treatment for breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And it was just one of those things where if you hear her tell the story. It was like, you know, she was saving every bit of energy she had for that particular performance. And she just, I mean, she slays the entire song. And then um, I, I can't mention a cover, even though the original artist is guesting on this, uh, a live cover. I can't mention one without mentioning Pearl Jam and Neil Young singing Rockin' of the Free World. <laughs> in the 93 VMAs, I think it was the 93. I think it was 93. Um which again, there's just those are the formative ones that you just always kind of remember. Um, yeah. Oh, when I heard Bruno Mars cover "Poison" by Belle Biv DeVoe when I saw him in concert, so that was <laughs> that kind of made our night. We were like, "Yeah, awesome." Yeah. So, oh yeah, it was great. It was great. Never trust the big button to smile. Um, so, uh, before we get to our hey, list- actually, you just mentioned it though—the song "Piece of My Heart" by uh, mm-hmm. Big Brother and, and Janis Joplin. Mm-hmm. Most people don't realize not theirs. That was a cover. Mm. <laughs> yeah interesting absolutely. i did not know that yeah yeah and that's a good segue to this next p- portion so we're, we're going to get to our list eventually but what we did was we created our list we said there are certain songs that when you mention covers you kind of have to put on a list they're iconic they're obligatory so what we wanted to do was um just kind of we're of all respect to these songs we wanted to pick some that were just a little bit different or we could have be a little more creative with because you know if you don't do that then it's like okay who is who is doing these are these are like the pantheon of covers yes not something that we necessarily have a statement about exactly exactly so we're gonna we're gonna kind of do a lightning round of this um in all all fairness too to the listeners you know this is these type of songs if anybody just googled top 50 cover songs of all time you're gonna get this list so it wouldn't make sense for us to just recite it yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna rush down the list and then we can just kind of pick and choose if, if there's any that that um after i after i do the list if there's any that you want to say anything about so uh at the the first one i thought of of course was respect by aretha franklin which was originally by otis redding and then we have Jimi hendrix doing bob dylan's all along the watchtower um i don't know if rob kelly's going to come for us on our thoughts about dylan covers or not i I, I forgot to ask him um ike and tina turner doing ccr's proud mary i'm sorry i'm sorry i was just thinking uh we could actually do an entire episode of covers of Bob Dylan songs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we really could. Dylan, Dylan's we'll easy. Back. I hate to say this. Dylan's kind of easy to cover. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay. Uh, I can Tina Turner doing Proud Mary by CCR. Joe Cocker's version of With a Little Help from My Friends, which is a Beatles tune. Um, most famously, aside from his performance at Woodstock, was the theme to the show The Wonder Years. Two by Whitney Houston, the first being The Greatest Love of All, and the second being I Will Always Love You, um, which was a Dolly Parton tune. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the one that my wife brought up, which was her version of Shaka Khan's I Am Every Woman, which is also a great song. Um, Tainted Love, the soft cell version, especially the version of it that segues into a cover of uh, Baby Where Did Our Love Go, Mm -hmm. which which is... Extended cut, yeah. Yeah. Um, Sinead O'Connor covering uh, Nothing Compares to You Prince uh, Two Monkeys covers of Neil Diamond songs I'm a Believer which was sung by Mickey Dolenz I believe and Daydream Believer which was Davy Jones on vocals uh, The Fugees of course covering Roberta Flack's Killing Me Softly with his song um, Elvis Costello's cover of Nick Lowe. That's Nick Lowe's What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. 
Um, I dropped in Men from Men Earth Span Earth Bands Blinded by the Light because I think that's where the wrapped up like a douche thing comes from. <laughs> but they they play that on classic rock radio when I was a teenager so much. Um Johnny Cash covering nine inch nails hurt, although each of us, and especially Ryan has mentioned, you probably put all of those um American <laughs> albums on there. But Hurt uh was the one that got a lot of video airplay on. Yeah, um, yeah. Um I can't mention covers without mentioning UB40. Uh Red Red Wine, Can't Help Falling in Love. There were a couple, they like made a career out of mm. they charted with a couple of covers. I think they did the way you do the thing you do, or it might be something of something else. Um Jeff Buckley covering Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, which yeah. is I'm we are all so tired of. Used in movies, and a song I heard on the radio yesterday morning driving into work, Istanbul, not Constantinople, by They Might Be Giants, which is a cover of a novelty song by the Four Lads, which actually did chart back in 1953. I had to look that up. Any that jump out to you that you have just want to have have a, an opinion on, want to talk about? Um, you know, like I said, they're all. I mean, I, I could have added, probably gone and added like ten more to this list, but. Yeah, I need to I need to mention the Sinead O'Connor. Nothing compares to you. Um, I've always had an irrational bias against the song, and I say it's <laughs> irrational because there's nothing wrong with it. But the fact that when she won the Grammy for this, she didn't thank Prince. She like made this political statement and didn't address the fact that he wrote the song and gave it to her. Mm. Um, and then Prince went off and recorded his own kind of live version and and put that out on one of his B sides. And I love that version. However. Uh, just recently, Pink, uh, in a in a performance for BBC or something else, I don't remember what it was, but Pink does a version of Nothing Compares to You, and it's very much in the style of the Sinead O'Connor version. Mm-hmm. She's doing that version of the song, but she does it beautifully, and it's a great, great song. So, if it, yeah, if anybody wants to hear a slightly different cover, check out Pink doing Nothing Compares to You. Yeah, I actually, you know, it's really funny that you mentioned um, Elvis Costello's version of uh, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. Um, I have on a bootleg concert of the Ataris, who we may or may talk about later, I have lead singer Christopher Rowe doing an acoustic version of that song. And it's really, really cool. And it's like one of those things that kind of triggers like this. Oh, my God, that song's just three chords. <laughs> That's it. Like, any, <laughs> anybody can play that song. So. <laughs> Yeah. Um, should I have put the Bangles Manic Monday on here? I, I never knew if that was truly a cover considering Prince wrote it and gave it to them. I Did he? Because I, I always understood a cover to be, I guess it's a gray area where somebody has actually recorded a version as opposed to I wrote the song and gave yeah, it to I you. wouldn't. Uh, I, I wouldn't call that a cover. That's just that falls somewhere in in another realm because mm-hmm. I don't think he ever intended to record it himself. Yeah. Um, he had, he had planned to give it away to another project. He, he just thought of it as something else that he just, he had in mind, but he didn't think of it as a Prince song. Yeah. So, R- Ryan, Ryan, this goes back to, you know, we've, d- we did a Bee Gees podcast once about all the yeah, work yeah. that those yeah. guys, those guys wrote songs for other people and gave them out to other people. And that so that wouldn't necessarily consider them cover songs. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking at this list that I'm trying to think of of anything. I mean, I'm a believer has been covered two or three times since then. Smash Mouth did a very famous cover off the Shrek, Shrek soundtrack. Yeah. Soundtrack. Um, I can Tina Turner's Proud Mary. I think 
<laughs> probably overshadows the credence version even though the credence version is is really uh really solid i've always loved that joe cocker with a little help from my friends i enjoy the uh the beatles version but the, the joe cocker's singing is just um it takes it to a whole other level oh, I, I, o- forgot. I only see john belushi doing that on snl <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I, <laughs> I know the sketch, dude. <laughs> oh man! Oh, right now I got that image. But I've also I've got. <laughs> I just thought of another cover that I didn't have on my list, but it's um, Joe Cocker's song "You Can Leave Your Hat On," which mm. made famous from from Nine and a Half Weeks. Oh but man! There was a Tom Jones cover of that song at the end of the movie, "The Full Monty," when the guys are doing their performance, that's and right. I love that. Oh Tom my god! Yeah. Version. Yep. Like that's like. If you talk about like movie endings, and this is something that Rob Kelly and I, and I have talked about, like greatest movie endings, that's one of my all-time favorites. Is the the ending of the Full Monty with just their dance and their performance. But Tom Jones covering "You Can Leave Your Hat On" is a great cover, and I mm. forgot that. All right. Any um, others? I like I said, I had to mention the MIP Giants only because how many even though i've never heard the original song i just how many times have i listened to that dang song i'm a Uh, little surprised you didn't mention marilyn manson's version of tainted love i'm a little surprised (laughs) Mm, although (laughs) although he did he did very well with um personal jesus and uh the depeche mode one he did uh no 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 uh sweet dreams by eurythmics oh yeah that actually that actually i was kind of being tongue-in-cheek but that actually the sweet dreams version was actually really popular yeah that was that was that was big yeah. so good call yeah now um neil you had mentioned the the i would imagine that the, the i will always love you like you're right it's kind of the probably the best charting cover song of all time i i, oh, I never hands down. bothered to look this hands, up that, that, that's like one of the yeah. best charting songs in history period whether yeah. it was a cover or not so. and, I, and i'll have to go back and look to see that there's a podcast out there i don't know if you two have heard of it or listened to it but i recommend i would recommend it slate does a podcast called hit parade and it's um, it is all about the Billboard charts, and, oh, and the, yeah. the, what the host does is he picks like a song that was popular this particular day in this particular year, and just does a whole retrospective of the career of that singer. And the and he, but he's done genres as well, so he's done and stuff like that. It's it was um, it's a fascinating show. It's like really really music geek chart geek <laughs> heavy, but it's really really fun to listen to. And and it's um, as somebody who just watched um thousands upon thousands of hours of vh1 in the late 90s when they were running behind the music and music <clears> countdowns it's just it, it hits my sweet spot but i i don't know if he's done a cover songs episode that would be the person who i like who i have to seek the research out from if i if i ever find out i will uh i'll i'll add it in um yeah so what we did was come up with a list of five songs each that we wanted to talk about uh like i said these were studio versions of covers of of songs um they may have appeared on soundtracks they may have appeared on albums they may be b-sides it doesn't matter where they came from as long as they were recorded in a studio some of them charted some of them almost came about as uh, up to the level of the original or um you know or or not as good as the original or whatever so we, we have some opinions on it and to kick us off is going to be Neil. So Neil, what is your first choice here? Okay, well, I, I you know, I just want to reiterate one more time because I kind of talked about this my criteria for my list. So I want to specify for everybody out there that these aren't necessarily my favorite covers of all time. Instead, I chose the songs that I thought were the most impactful or most important to warrant a discussion 
Um, I thought that would keep it interesting. Uh, so, but they aren't necessarily my faves. That being said, I definitely found myself falling into a very guitar heavy list. And that mm -hmm. was probably my, my taste in music kind of comes out in my covers. Um, it wasn't a conscious choice, but for reasons I'll explain as we go. The first song on my list is Guns N' Roses cover of Bob Dylan's Knocking on Heaven's Door. Mama, take this badge from me. So, um, okay, to be honest with you, I hated the song when it came out because it was, <laughs> I hated this because it was so overplayed. In fact, it, well, God, to be honest with you, I still kind of hate it, but I can't deny its impact. Um, no, no, there's a reason I chose this and it, don't laugh. It was, it was the only ballady type song that came out of the Guns N' Roses set that we have talked about on another show. Um, Guns N' Roses set from Live at the Ritz, uh, that 88 show that MTV played late, late at night, which was kind of their introduction to the world. Um, this this was like the only kind of soft ballady type song that they did in their set. And it showed mm -hmm. a whole different side of the band. Um, it's definitely different than the original. And so that's kind of why I thought it had to launch launched my list with this but my personal feelings aside about the song and it's and it's overblown popularity this was really really big for guns and roses so i'll leave it at that yeah, i've always been kind of curious that at the like kind of the supreme height of their power and their popularity with the release of use your illusion they chose a cover of a dylan song and a cover of a beatles song um for each of those because uh, you know there was um uh live and let die Live and Let Die. Sorry, yeah. was the other one. Yeah, that they had these songs on there. So, well, for what it's, I mean, for for what we know now, looking back, this was also at a time where uh, Axl Rose wanted to be the Beatles. He wanted to, you know, he he was listening to Elton John during the recording of this album and stuff like that. So this mm -hmm. was kind of the beginning of the splintering of the band kind of thing. These were that he wanted. He wanted to write the next Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds kind of thing. And I'm pretty sure Estranged is. <laughs> yes yeah yep that was the song that broke the band up <laughs> and here i am because me the piano playing kid loved estranged <laughs> i love estranged too i love the dolphins in it <laughs> i don't think i ever watched that entire video to be honest with you well you'd have to be awake yeah. for a couple days well, that's true that's true <laughs> Yeah, I you know it took me years to hear Dylan's version of this. Um, this was the only version I had heard because Illusion, Illusion One, Illusion Two, and Appetite were three of my thirteen from Columbia House when I joined <laughs> yeah. it back in '92. Oh uh, shit! I still owe them money. Damn. I, I don't know. I, I think I owe them a buck. No, no, I don't owe them money. Tam Panacrease owes them money. Ah, uh -huh. 
very well done. Nice. Yes. They'll never find you. No, no. <laughs> um. Anyway, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I was listening to this. I hadn't listened to this in a long time, and um, it actually, uh, Axel's vo- voice works pretty well with the song. He, it doesn't sound like he's straining for anything, or, or that he's. I mean, I, he is trying too hard, but not in the way that like he shouldn't. He doesn't like have the the voice to sing it. I, I thought I always thought it was a pretty good performance of of the song. Uh, out of the two covers, the "Live and Let Die" cover is the one I prefer mm-hmm. off of this. And if, and if they're going to do kind of a slow, if I'm going to listen to like one of their slower songs off "Usual Illusion One," I think my preferred one preference is um, "You Ain't the First off of One. Which is which is kind of a uh, a slow sort of kiss off song and ends with that to the bar and stuff. But no, I, I've always I've always enjoyed this. Um, and it was I mean there are and I probably because there are worse Guns and Roses songs on on that album and then worse covers that they've done because they did the Spaghetti Incident, which has some really good songs on it and a couple that I was like, yeah, it's not so great. Ryan, anything to add here? Um, yeah, I, I've always I've enjoyed this one. Like I. I, it kind of for me it kind of gets buried under their original songs because I really love those two albums, Illusion One and Illusion Two. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I enjoy this one. I like kind of the bluesy feel for it. I do actually like Axel uh, singing Dylan's lyrics. I think there is something kind of special and, and interesting about that. Tom, you kind of maybe like whether it was in jest or true. You said it's kind of it's kind of easy to cover a Dylan song, which is interesting for being such a for, uh, well, part of it is the sheer volume of what he he puts out, and mm-hmm. for being for having such a distinctive voice of his own, I think there is something about his style that lends itself to popular covers. And I would also uh, point out, uh, I mean, there are countless covers. As you, you guys kind of joked, we could do a cover, uh, we could yeah. do an entire episode that would mm-hmm. be just as long as this one yep. about favorite covers of Dylan songs. Um, but I would actually point out that back in 2012. Of all things, Amnesty International sponsored this four-disc compilation called Chimes of Freedom, the songs of Bob Dylan. And it had 69 brand new covers of Bob Dylan's songs. Um, it was actually more than 69 songs. Some of them were just add-ons, like other like live tracks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like um, There was a live version of My Chemical Romance's Desolation Row that mm-hmm. they'd already released, the, the studio version that was part of uh, the Watchmen soundtrack. Um, but 69 new songs that were covers of those. And I got it. I listened <laughs> to them all. Uh, and some of them, I just want to go through because we're just talking about covers. And, yeah. People, I'm gonna I'm going to mention as many cover songs as I got. Officially, I have five in this episode. I'm gonna try and talk about like twenty five <laughs> oh, yeah. songs. Go yeah. for it. Um, so just a few of my favorite Dylan covers from that compilation: "Drifters Escape" by Patti Smith, "Karina Karina" by Pete Townsend, "Most of the Time" by Betty Lovett. Remember that name? She might pop up on an episode of Fire and Water Records. Uh, Love Sick by Mariachi El Bronx. Changing of the Guard by the Gaslight Anthem. Boots of Spanish Leather by the Airborne Toxic Event. You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go by Miley Cyrus. Uh, Love Minus Zero by Jackson Brown. And Trying to Get to Heaven by Lucinda Williams. All great, great Bob Dylan songs and great cover versions by other Mm. artists that you can check out. Yeah, and before I ask you what your your pick is, Ryan, I should mention that one of the places I 
forgot to put in my list of where you tend to find covers too is the tribute album those started popping up in into the 90s yeah and, yeah uh i remember there was a working class hero the john lennon one um there was an elvis one at one point i have a springsteen one in my collection so uh and there are there's always some some really good stuff in those so that's cool so yeah ryan um you're up next what do you have for us so the first song on my list, and I, I when when thinking about my list, I kind of I split the songs that I'm going to do on this episode and the songs that I'm going to do when we cover part two on Fire and Water Records. Um, if I'm can be a little bit selfish, I'm saving my favorite stuff for my show. <laughs> so the, the the five songs that we do the next time around are going to be more personal favorites. These are ones that had a little bit more of a an interesting take or an interesting personal experience uh, that I just wanted to share. So I am going to start off with one that I think it wasn't on your list, but I I've always kind of considered this to be a pretty popular uh, cover song, at least for the 21st century. Uh, And we are talking about the cover of Judy Garland's own over the rainbow covered by Israel Kamakawiwa Ole. Freshman year of college, a friend introduced me to The Smoking Popes, the album Destination Anywhere. Uh, It had a cover of the Gene Wilder song, Pure Imagination, from the movie Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That song floored me, and it stayed in my rotation for a long time. I came very, very close to putting it on my list for this episode. I end up leaving it off because, compared to some of the other covers that we're talking about, it's kind of an average song. It's it's a mid 90s alternate rock song mm-hmm. by the way that song what... was also covered by marilyn manson <laughs> oh nice i didn't even realize that but, um but what impressed upon me was like this, this when i first heard that this new realization that there were some kind of wall had been knocked down that there was some previous barrier that i assumed existed between uh what was possible with music simply when it came to to covers and a cover didn't just have to be a popular hit, something else from the recesses and the catalogs uh, of other popular and mainstream music. It, it could be a deep cut or some beloved private, but a cover song could be could come from a musical or a jingle. The source material for just covers just like opened up in front of me uh, when I heard that Pure Imagination song. So I, that blew my mind, and it, I guess it made me a little bit more receptive. And that's why I was so affected the next time I saw that type of cover executed to perfection, which I think is that when this 
Hawaiian Islander with an unpronounceable name plucked this timeless Judy Garland number out of the ether and completely recontextualized everything about the song. The original Over the Rainbow, as you know, comes from The Wizard of Oz. It's about longing for a new place, a new love, a new life or situation. Israel's version with this acoustic and island sound feels like that place of longing and that yearning has already been discovered. Like you're there, you're in this place with very minimal instrumentation. It really just the cadence of his voice. He puts you in this distinctive place that could be pleasurable or, 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 or paradisal. Paradisal is not a word, but that, that, that sort of that, that feeling. And, um, and yet, possibly shades of, of gloom and worry and maybe that just comes from the other context which was this song was used probably overbearingly so on an episode of er which was the final episode with anthony edwards character dr green when uh they killed him off and he died and like he had cancer and he went to hawaii to spend his last days and this this uh song was played there um but like yeah after that i just i remember feeling like I thought I was hearing the song a lot in shows, either dealing with weddings or funerals in these like kind of exotic locations. Um, but yeah, so like the, the popularity of that and just like, I, I was, maybe this one was too obvious, but I couldn't leave it off my list because it is beautiful and it is successful. And it is just this stark reimagining of what is already kind of a timeless hit that you would never think that this, type of thing would go together and yet this is like exactly what i think of when i think of cover songs and what they're capable of yeah i'll 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 jump in too um first of all ryan before i talk about this song you triggered another memory in me in your description didn't didn't a bunch of punk bands do a the schoolhouse rock album one time with all the I saturday morning so yes. yeah i feel like i heard that and there was like all the cool like indie 90s groups like that weren't popular yeah but, yeah, but yeah. did some of those songs and it was like oh my god you can do tv jingles and stuff <laughs> i was like who's gonna do the rice crispy treats theme song you know and stuff like that mm -hmm. like that that was cool um no this is this is interesting right i i was never really a fan of the song um but the one thing I appreciated it was everything that you described, which was how it completely stripped everything you knew about an established song and reconstructed it in a way that gave you a totally different feeling. You know, I remember, I distinctly remember always feeling like Judy Garland's version of it was uplifting and there was an element of hope in dreams and a better tomorrow kind of thing. There was just something about that. This version of the song destroyed that. This version of the song really makes me feel like a sense of loss or a sense of a sadness. Like there's like this, I feel this more so, Ryan, you mentioned either weddings or funerals. I see this almost entirely at funerals mm -hmm. um, kind of thing. And that's, and that's not, I'm not saying that as, as a bad way. I mean, the song makes you feel something and that's what, is, what's, that's what art should do. But so, you know, this, yeah, that's, that's where I land on it. It definitely it, it's a good choice, even though I'm not crazy about the song. It's a good choice because it does make me feel something completely different than the original version of the song made me feel. And that's that's cool. Yeah, it's it's bittersweet in a really, really great way. And and I, I've I've always liked this version because of the way it accomplishes what you guys were both talking about. It just takes it, strips it down into something completely different with it. 
and adds just layers to it. Um, I, in fact, I think this was the first time I've listened to this song all the way through in years. It has been used in a number of montages and mm-hmm. commercials yeah. and things over yeah. the years to the point where I think I'd only heard the the opening and the humming and things and maybe the um, maybe the chorus. So to listen to it all the way through is a really nice treat. Um, and yeah, I don't really have much to add except for the fact that between this guy and Jason Mraz, I think ukulele, they were responsible <laughs> for the spike in ukulele sales. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, it's, it is such a, it is a great piece. It always ends up coming up on my recommended on YouTube too. <laughs> Jason Mraz. You know that song. No, I do. I, I, <laughs> I don't want to get it in my head. <laughs> so, all right. So I'm going to go actually in a completely different direction than light ukulele with um with a nice uh of a nice judy garland song um i am going into the 80s and with a band that we actually mentioned uh in our in already um my first pick is the bangles covering simon and garfunkel's hazy shade of winter I saw this video on MTV in 87 when it came out. And uh, I don't think, I don't think I heard the original for about like 20 years, actually more, maybe 15 or at some point I bought a best of Simon and Garfunkel CD compilation and it was on there. The original I enjoy. It's almost like two New York guys doing their version of California dreaming in a way, because <laughs> it, it is, it's very, it's, it has that same feel to it, but there's a little bit more, to it whereas california dream is like really laid back and stuff like that uh but this cover the cover starts with this kind of synth um you know tingly synth thing and then the bangles come in with this harmony and then all of a sudden you hit this thrash guitar that um it immediately lets you know where this version is going and the, the, they keep the tune very you know faithful to the original but um, between the guitar, which doesn't let up except for in the bridge, which kind of brings back that ethereal synth sound. Um, and then you have the bangles who have some great harmony on the vocals. Um, it was on, this was on the soundtrack to less than zero, by the way, in case you're wondering yes. where it was. I'm so glad the bangles got their due after a while. Um, I felt like when the when the dust settled from the 80s, they they weren't forgotten, but they didn't have, you know. They they would pop up, or maybe Manic Monday would be played every once in a while. But um, but you know, I've taken a little bit of a deeper dive into um the Bengals catalog, and I've also wondered if Susanna Hoffs actually ages because she's still gorgeous at sixty two. Um, but no, this is I think this is my favorite of their entire 
um, this and and uh, probably in my room, my favorites of the of the what I've heard because it's just it's got so much energy and the fact that they were a for all the Manic Monday is a great song. Walk like an Egyptian is kind of a novelty bit. Eternal Flame is a nice ballad, but the Bengals were a rock band. Um, kind of on par with the Go-Go's, which they probably got compared to all the time. And the Go-Go's were essentially a pop-punk band as well. So so I love the fact that they could really just um, have a song that went really, really hard and do that with what was ostensibly a folk song. And I thought I've I've always, always, always loved this. It's one of my favorite covers. Yeah, I'll stay in, in your room. That's my favorite Bangle song. I love that That's one. a great song, yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of this one, uh, I'm glad you had this on your list. I really like this one because this is an example where I don't really care for the original one, uh, and I like Simon and Garfunkel as much. I I I like I have you know little list of their greatest hits and everything, but this is a song that to me always felt a little bit incomplete. Like it had the potential to be this up tempo rock song, but they only ever recorded the demo and then mm. just let it live then just like kind of like let it fly um so i feel like this is the this is the song coming into fruition this is the what whatever they might have dreamed for the song this is the realization of what they might have had. and i also i don't know what their intent lyrically was for the song but this has always given me and maybe it's just because of the time i've always gotten kind of a cold war vibe uh from this one um and again having no idea if that was ever the intention with the authors but just like the guitar riff and everything, there's this driving, pulsating kind of energy. Yeah, I, I love this song a lot. I, I'm glad you had this on your list. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't have a whole lot to add to what you guys said. I, 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 st- I distinctly remember from Less Than Zero, which was a very you know for for being a teenage you know young teenage boy early in high school. That was a very dark kind of movie that mm. set the tone for you know like a, a whole life that i hadn't known existed there wasn't much i saw about the young rich kids in hollywood doing cocaine you know and stuff <laughs> that that kind of thing um so it was like kind of a like one of those like taboo movies that you had to kind of sneak out and see not letting your parents know you had to see it um the memory i have of this song was this was also when i was coming into my own as a guitar player at that age but i was still early enough on where i wasn't playing very intricate guitar riffs yet um i was playing notes and this had a really cool descending guitar riff that i could play if i practiced i could play it because it wasn't you weren't there wasn't a whole lot of cool technique to it it was just a really cool descending pattern and i like that and i remember feeling like oh my god this is a cool rock song that's on the radio i can play with a neat guitar part when every one of my friends was just talking about the chick Susanna Hoffs. Oh my God, you gotta see this girl. You gotta see this girl. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, but I can play that guitar part. And nobody else cared. So that's it. The the final thing I'll say about this is I generally shy away, and Ryan knows this about me. I generally shy away from a lot of 80s type of music because even really well-written songs have a tendency to sound dated today just mm-hmm. because of the way they were recorded just because of the sound of them um this song doesn't this song doesn't fall into that category if this was on rock radio today an alternative rock station like there's nothing about the recording that makes you say like okay that's a little synth heavy and cheesy that's a little that's mm-hmm. a little you know whatever um it doesn't it doesn't feel like that 
Yeah, it, ha- it has that little synth bit kind of in the background when it starts, but the guitars just kind of slice right through it. And then it mm-hmm. sort of shows up in the middle, but it's almost like they're, it's almost like a fake out or something. They're they trying to get that, uh, with the harmony and stuff. So that's why I love the the opening chords to the song and the uh, when the guitar yeah. kicks in. It's just, it's so great. But you're right, because you're right, there's, there's, the 80s is a, the 80s really is a decade that's notorious for songs that don't age very well. I mean, there are a lot of decades that are like that, but there are a lot of songs in the 80s that like you can hear the overproduction yeah. <laughs> and things. And there's a lot of weird synth stuff in the background and certain things and, and there, you know, um bad saxophone parts. And uh and so you're right, this just transcends it. It, it makes it it's from the 80s, but it's it, it holds up incredibly well. Um, Neil, we're back to you. What is your second pick? Okay, this was this was kind of a toss-up. If there's a possible weak link on my list, it might be this one, but I still chose it for a distinct reason. Uh, I'm going to choose Hollywood Vampires' cover of Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love. So with this one, boy, I I knew going into this list, I wanted to choose as many songs that had a harmonica solo as possible. That was really important to me. <laughs> no, no, seriously. This, Neil, I, Neil, I got... <laughs> you're teasing us for later because I know what you're well, talking about. Neil, my first note, my first note right, right here on the camera, nice harmonica work. <laughs> yes. All right, good. Well, then not I, a single I, Huey Lewis song on this list, Neil. That's that's true. That's true. Well, this is this is the first of many. Uh, <laughs> no, this was you know this might fall into that category. I know there's going to be listeners of the show that are going to be like, "Oh my God, you cannot improve upon that song." And in all fairness, they didn't improve upon the song. It's not better than the original. But this was an interesting choice for me because, again. Um, it's it's completely it's it's fresh it's interesting it takes on a completely different the whole entire intro and first verse and and like there's there's no band in it yet it's just got this like kind of haunting dark blues um melancholiness kind of thing uh that goes up until all of a sudden the full band comes in and the guitar the guitar rock with you know uh, Joe Perry from Aerosmith and even Johnny Depp uh, playing the guitar parts for this song are harder than Jimmy Page's 
uh, part. And I'll never forget, even though we're talking about the recorded versions of songs tonight, the first time I saw this was uh, on some tribute show. I can't, I can't for the life of me see it, but it's on YouTube. Um, the band was playing live and the backing band was made up of uh, the guys from Guns N' Roses. Duff McKagan was on bass. Mm. Um, uh, who, who was their drummer that replaced Steven Adler? I can't think of the guy's name. Um, uh, the blonde guy uh, on the whole Use Your Illusion tour. I can't, I, I'm so sorry. I can't think of the guy's name, but the Guns N' Roses drummer as well. He yeah. was in Velvet Revolver, you know, same guy. Anyway, but Lizzie Hale from Hailstorm came out and sang with Alice Cooper. And it just blew me away. And just seeing, I mean, this is, this is one of the most simple yet incredible rock riffs, guitar riffs ever. And this song, kind of kicked that took it up a notch is it better than the original no nothing's nothing's going to be better than zeppelin's version but <laughs> i found this a really interesting choice of how to kind of reconstruct and reimagine a classic rock riff and i chose it for that reason yeah i'm glad that you're acknowledging it's not better because that was kind of like my first thought i was like okay well it, it doesn't it doesn't surpass the original. And also with the acknowledgement like that, some listeners might have this feeling that you, you can't touch something. Some things are untouchable. Some things are so sacred. You can't cover that song. You can't be better than, you know, perfection or whatever. Like just leave that alone. I don't necessarily believe that. Uh, I think you run the risk if you try to cover or try to adapt something that is so beloved that if you fail, it's going to make a bigger splash. Um, but yeah, I, I think you know, try anything, try covering any, any Led Zeppelin song. Um, this one took me a couple listens. This, this, I, I actually give this one a couple tries because my first couple, I was like, I'm not hearing anything, I'm not, this doesn't feel distinct. It's just, I'm not sure what was the, what was the impetus behind this other than we can, so let's just give it a shot. <laughs> but the more I got into it, I was just like, there's it goes back to that sense of celebration and just having fun with the material. And more often I find that works better with live performances, but sometimes you can skate by on, on the, the uh, recorded studio tracks too. Just if you're having fun with it, if you're embracing it, if you're celebrating it, if you have respect for it, but also just trying to say, you know, we're, this is our version of it and we're just going to put it out there. I can have enough love and appreciation for that to kind of like roll with it. So this is not my version of a whole lot of love, but it's interesting. It's worth a listener to. And that's why I chose it for those, yep. for those reasons alone. Yeah, I agree. Like, <clears throat> and I did really like the guitar on this. Um, I think more than the vocal, it, this is tough to do, especially for like a whole lot of love. I think is in, is in my top five Zeppelin songs. And I, this is one of those things. Robert Plant is one of those singers where I guess if you're, I wonder if like it, it's hard to not try to do a bad imitation of him, you know, like <laughs> the voice and everything. Cause he, he is one of those people, especially on a song, one of these songs where he has a very, very distinctive voice. Um, they kind of tip into that every once in a while, but um, I thought I was kind of really don't have much to add to that, uh, add to it aside from what you guys both said, where it is, it's, um, I thought it was pretty solid, um, you know, and, and, you know, you take your shot and 
you know, it was, it was, uh, it was def- definitely worth the listen. Um, but yeah, you're, it's, and it was fun, but no, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm, it, it doesn't outdo the original, but if you go in not expecting that, then um, I think you're going to enjoy it. To be completely yeah, honest with sure. you, yeah, yeah. In my song, show, remember this, this is yeah. this whole the whole point of this is to stir, spur in discussion. You know, that oh kind yeah, of thing. that's that's what yeah. we're trying to do. So yeah. there's, you know, I I can freely admit that this isn't my my favorite cover, and I almost left it off the list. But I thought it was an interesting talking point. Yeah, and it does it does like I said it does point out to that like when you're covering something so classic, you know, like. That, that's a high bar to clear right yeah, so, yeah. yeah and and so um if you can i we all seem to have passed the age where we were really snotty about the way what we expected out of the quality of our music so i think we can have Ryan, that ryan's not past that yet yeah yeah well you know. never will <laughs> speaking of ryan <laughs> yeah speaking of ryan great segue it's like we do this professionally ryan what's your next pick uh, my next pick, uh, we are sticking with this idea of uh, uh, sort of the opposite of taking something and going a completely opposite direction with yes. it, just completely flipping it on its air. Uh, so I am talking about the Gourds covering the song Gin and Juice as originally penned by Snoop Dogg. All right. Uh, Snoop recorded this one in 1994, his original rap. Uh, this was re-recorded and, and written by the Gords in 1996. Continuing kind of where I left off with the last song, when I started college, this was a super popular hit. In fact, in order to enroll, you needed to have a mixed CD that somebody <laughs> burned from either Napster or Audio Galaxy. And the song, and it had to include this song. And this song had to be misattributed to either Fish or OAR or some other, like jam band descendant of the grateful dead and i specifically mention that because it wasn't until we were prepping for this episode that i knew that the band that recorded this was called the gourds i've had this song in my library for 20 damn years 
<laughs> and I didn't know who the band was. I thought it was somebody else just because of the mixing it wherever I originally found this one. So, like the chronic about which Snoop originally rapped, this song is mind-expanding. <laughs> no one had covered rap music like this. No one had covered gangster rap with this hard-hitting West Coast feel. And then just flip it with this country bluegrass song. And it was just, this This showed me like that truly anything is possible with music. No song was off limits. Nothing was so sacred. This getting to my point that I was just making when Neil was talking about like, like, yeah, you can take any genre, anything. And just like, just the, the farther you reach, the greater the glory. Because this was just like such a, a weirdly earworm kind of infectious hit that when I heard this, I was like, this is nuts, but I'm kind of in love with this song. And this is how I felt about it for the first couple of years when I first discovered it. Um, this would not make my list of top five or top 10 personal favorite covers, but for the way it affected me and my understanding of cover songs, I think I, I had to include it on my list. And the, the one other thing I'll say is talking about just like hacking the system. Like I remember in high school in the late nineties, we would have those talent shows or those battle of the bands, mm -hmm. those things that you guys talked about. And I remember there was a there was a time period where rap was off limits. There was just like some some mm. whoever was involved was mm. like, you're not gonna rap, you're not gonna cover, you're not gonna like you're not gonna do any of those like like hits like those hip hop, no gangster mm. rap, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. You could not touch Snoop Dogg. But if one of those farmer bands had done this version, no problem. Nobody bats near. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, so that was, I was just thinking about, I was like, yeah, this is how you get away with this. This is how you, you stealth sneak into the system. But yeah. You're a social justice warrior, Ryan. Always. <laughs> the exception to the rule that nobody really did any rap in these battle of the bands in my high school, the exception to the rule being the obligatory Beastie Boys cover. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Nick. Anyway. Yeah. Um, Okay, so Ryan, <laughs> uh, I when I first li I'd never heard this before, and oh, when okay. you, yeah, when you put this on the list, I started playing it, and in the first, maybe before the lyrics started, I immediately wanted to hate it, and I got mad at you for choosing. <laughs> I was I, I I was all set to like curse you out for choosing this because I thought you were trying to make a joke. Like trying to do like uh, like I'm like no we're doing these cover songs we're taking this seriously like what are you doing <laughs> and then I heard the entire song and I heard the lyrics and I was like okay I see what you're doing here I see where you're going with this it was it was quirky and fun but it's extremely original and by my letter of the law in choosing what you know what makes a cover song this like I could almost in a backwards way see me playing this song at one at an acoustic show and busting it out and having people wonder what it is until all of a sudden i start rapping yeah um, exactly um there was there was a lot of that and i was like damn you for making me kind of like this i was like <laughs> i was like shit you were serious <laughs> so, as a heart attack how often how often will you hear you know, a white bluegrass singer saying, get off these NUTs. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it definitely makes me rethink my next rap album, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I really liked this. I was, um, 
I had to appreciate the way that a song in the hip hop world translates to country and bluegrass. I was like, had you, Tom, Tom, had you heard this one or was this? No, just... I hadn't. I okay, because this, like... this was huge for me in the early 2000s. Like, I heard this everywhere. I don't know what it was, like what bubble I was in in Iowa City, but this was, <laughs> yeah, this was big. Yeah. Um, and it was funny. It was like, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this. I listened to it a couple of times and I'm listening to it at one point last night. I'm like, Where's the live performance where they bring Snoop out for the second verse and he does this? <laughs> and but he's but the thing is, is like I don't I haven't listened to enough Snoop in my life to know if he can do that speed of like bust a rhyme speed of rap because that's the rate they're going. But uh, that would have been like I can imagine like that would have been hilarious, just to, just awesome um, because it, it straddles the line between a really good kind of genre bending cover. And the kind of novelty cover that some we're mm-hmm. going to get into. Um, so, like mm-hmm. uh, for instance, um, there's a cover of "Boys in the Hood" by a punk band called Dynamite Hack that came out in 2001 or two. That it, it almost seems like a novelty song. Like they're just kind of we're going to have fun with it, but it's almost like they're poking a little fun of the song or. Or something. It's there's something I can't put my finger on about um, about the song, even though that it got played a lot. And there was a video with them walking around in sweaters, at preppy on a golf course or something. <laughs> um, this didn't feel like that. This felt like a genuine love for the song, where they were like, "Yeah, we want to see what we can do th- with this and and have a lot of fun with it," um, and take it in the completely opposite direction because the, the original version is is a lot more laid back, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, to, Tom, to your point, I think I know what you're saying. Like, if if the band Weezer had covered this song, mm-hmm. you would think they're trying to make a joke of it. Yeah. But this was kind of like, no, this is this band's recording of in their style. But they're mm-hmm. they're kind of like giving respect and love to the song. Yeah, so. come a little bit full circle and Tom, what you were talking about, uh, Snoop. I think it was like five years ago. I had to look it up because mm-hmm. I couldn't remember the name of it. Snoop. Did actually do a kind of a country song called my medicine hmm. um a couple of years ago it was kind of a fun song but again like no like no i could never imagine him like hitting like the, the speed and the tempo of of anywhere near this but yeah all right that brings me up to me and my second song um i am kind of staying within my wheelhouse i'm going with punk and i'm going with the clash covering i fought the law which was originally recorded by the crickets
so yeah, it was originally recorded. I had to actually look this up because I can remember who recorded it. it. Was the crickets, and I believe it was a post Buddy Holly crickets hit. Um, my intro to punk has two parts to it, and if you want to hear about the first part, I don't remember the episode number. It's from back in 2014. I talked about Green Day's album Dookie because I was a junior in high school in 1994, and just in the right place. You give me the catcher in the rye and Green Day in the same year, and something is going to fundamentally change about me. And that <laughs> I started listening to punk. The second is a documentary miniseries um, that came out in the fall, I think it was the fall of '94, and it was called The History of Rock and Roll. It aired in syndication, at least around me, and um, it was like I think nine or ten parts. And I remember I remember watching most of it, and I remember there was one episode. It was just called Punk. And they did this really great job of going through all these bands from the late 70s. Um, and I knew who the Ramones were because I'm from Long Island and everybody's heard of the Ramones at, at that point. And I'd heard of the Sex Pistols and I'd heard of the Clash or I'd seen the, I'd, it's going to date me, I'd seen the words of the Clash on like people's jean jackets and things like that. Um, but I never really listened to them. And um, so I was introduced to that. I was primed for that sort of music because of Green Day and heard some of that music for the first time in this television documentary and went out and bought The Clash's first album. And at that time, this was in 94, this was a CD. I think the U.S. version of the album was the only one available. So I, and I think I Fought the Law is only on that version. So it's the one I have. This, um, a couple other songs in there, like Janie Jones, I never was one of my favorite songs and still is. But this was, I think, the at, at very first was the song I listened to the most off the album. And um, I didn't know it was a cover until years later. Um, I heard other bands cover it, but I think this is the first, this is the one that I, I think I like uh, the most. It's, it is straightforward. It's, it's more straightforward rock than the sort of anarchic punk type of stuff. And to this day, that's kind of my preference with Clash songs, Train in Vain, um, Death or Glory, London Calling, these have more of a rock feel to them than kind of like the sort of chaotic punk to it. But again, again, the Ramones, as, as people have pointed out before, the Ramones are basically the Beach Boys on just a lot grimier and um, in, in a big way. And so I like how punk bands could take older songs, this one from like the 5960, I think it was, and, and put this spin on it, speed it up, or, or just give it you know give it some some edge and um my favorite part of course is the right before the end of the song the chorus where they're repeating i fought the law and the law one and they are just essentially it's a chant with drums behind it and it's very very hard for me to clap along if i'm <laughs> listening to it in the car or whatever um but yeah i could see this being a big song live too it's just it's it is a great um, it's, it is, it is a, it would be a really, really good spot in a, in a, in a set for, for where you want to drop in a cover. Yeah. Um, Tom. Okay. Well, first of all, let me just point this out and I hadn't thought about this until now, but I would love to do an entire clash episode because mm. I have always been a huge clash fan and there's a whole bunch, I've got a great clash playlist with, with some of my favorites are the, safe european home and uh, lost in the supermarket and things like that like there's like just a whole bunch of of class stuff um now to this song in particular i agree with you a i never knew that it was a cover took me the longest time to know it and there's that that actually is going to be common on a couple of the songs we talk about tonight 
there's a handful of them that I just didn't know were covers and, and when I first heard them. The only other thing I want to add about this song, which I think is really cool, um, the Ryan and I both were heavily influenced by our father's taste in music when we were really young. And I mean, like too young to be able to buy our own records and buy our own cassette tapes and stuff. Mm-hmm. So we only knew what my dad had in the record cabinet kind of thing underneath the stereo. He had this like shelf, homemade shelf of records. Um, my dad's style of music was all very Laurel Canyon hippie stuff you know it was the Joni Mitchells the Stephen Stills Neil Young Tom Petty you know like those Fleetwood Mac that that Laurel Kinnear but my dad had Clash records and it stood out to me because they didn't belong with the rest like I still to this day I still have a hard time picturing my dad listening to the Clash but he had all of them And it was just really interesting. But that was the one thing I remember was when I was maybe in like fifth grade, sixth grade, starting to listen to my own music, cool kids knew who The Clash was. Mm -hmm. So that would be like the thing that I would be like, okay, well, hey, my dad's got that record. I can listen to that because I wasn't going to go listen to Neil Young or Lindsey Buckingham or something like that. But he had The Clash. And so I have a distinct memory of discovering The Clash really, really early on, yet I swear to this day, I don't know why my dad had him. <laughs> Ryan, maybe you have some insight maybe. on that. <laughs> I don't. Actually, what I've been thinking this whole time is, Neil, <laughs> what we didn't have when we were kids, we didn't have the Amazon Echo or the Echo Dot <laughs> because my my way too young kid can walk into the kitchen and go, Alexa, play Everything is Awesome. And that damn song from the Lego movie by Tegan and Sarah plays over and over and over and over <laughs> Um, that's right. He's also discovering Kid Cudi for, for through some of these movies. But whatever, we'll, we'll get back to that. Um, no, I love the song too. Um, you mentioned the the original that Tom by the Crickets. Yeah, I know of a previous version of this one by the Bobby Fuller Four. Okay. Um, but the funny thing is, you're right. Like, the, because this kind of goes back to what I was saying. Like, where in the 50s and 60s there were a lot of songs yeah. that just got recycled and reused by mm-hmm. every all these different artists because they were just part of the, a catalog that the studio owned. So there might have been four or five versions of the song that kind of all sounded like carbon copies. Sure. This feels like the clash saying, we're going to make a statement with this one. We're going to make this. We ours is the definitive version of this song. And from now on, when you hear the song, it's a clash song mm-hmm. and they just kind of do it. They, they, they have I that agree. much influence and that much impact on it. So yeah, yeah no, I, yeah, good, good choice. I really like this. Yeah. Always been a fan of this one too. Yeah, uh, and I count you guys lucky for for that selection of music in your parents' record cabinet. I mean, I will take Fleetwood Mac. Uh, I will always take Fleetwood Mac. I love Fleetwood Mac, but I will. I would take Lindsey Buckingham and Neil Young over Spryand. <laughs> <laughs> I just when they were getting rid of their record collection, I got a few that were like really good. I my mom's old mama's and the papa's album and a couple of Beatles records and a. Donna Summer's greatest hits and jokingly pulled that air supply's greatest hits out of there. Cause but yeah, but I was just like, what is all of this stuff? Like this, no wonder. So I kind of, I didn't follow with my parents taste in music. I, I went in the completely opposite direction. 
Well, I think, I think we all do though. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, you know, that's common. That's what, yeah. you know, 90% of my dad's record collection now as an adult, I love, he had mm-hmm. great taste in music, but as mm-hmm. a kid, that's what he listened to. So that's what I didn't want to listen to. But then you would, every once in a while, you, you know, Ryan can attest to this. We would discover either the clash or Blondie or something. Mm-hmm. And I would be like, Oh my God. And I, I've never heard my dad listen to it, but he had them all. You know, Ryan, dad had to have probably five Blondie albums. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the other hand, like, this will be a preview for a song we talk about in 20 minutes later down the road. But I'll be like, oh, yeah, I've got my own taste in music. I've got this Beck guy that I love. And my dad's like, oh, this song, he's sampling this other thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) right. All right. I'll come back to that one 20 minutes later. All right. All right. So I believe we are up to you, Neil. This is song number three on your list. Yeah. Number three. Okay, now this is uh, the the last two. I purposely said maybe were not some of my favorite covers, and I threw them in there to the mix because they were good talking points. They weren't a discussion. This song that I'm going to chose, I've talked about before, so I'm not going to go way deep into it. But this is one of my favorite cover songs of all time, and this is Hailstorm's version of Hearts. All I want to do is make love to you. He accepted with a smile So we drove for a while I didn't ask him his name This lonely boy in the rain Oh, faith, tell me it's right Is this love at first sight? Please don't make it wrong Just stay Okay, so speaking of Lizzie Hale, which we've talked about before in my last mm-hmm. song, um, uh, I do got to admit, I broke one of my own rules for for these music anthology shows. Ryan and I spoke at great length about Hailstorm before. We did an episode of, of a show called Girl Power, and it was the first of an anthology series, and we talked about Hailstorm, and I think I probably mm-hmm. made a significant reference to this song before. So I didn't want to choose it for this. I, I don't like to recycle the same material that we've talked about before, either the same artist. So it's certainly not the same songs. But considering this is one of my favorite cover songs of all time, what better episode to do it on than an episode about cover songs? Yeah. So I chose it regardless. It perfectly matches my criteria for what makes a good cover song. It does something completely original by taking what was an 80s keyboard synth-heavy power ballad, and it turns it into a hard rock anthem. And I think I personally... Forgive me, listeners, for saying this if you disagree, but I think it greatly improves upon what was already a massive hit. Uh, this that this this gets me in the feels, and that's it. Oh, we talked about Hailstorm on that uh, Girl Power episode. We also talked about her um, on the last uh, Very Daily Halloween episode that we did. So we talked about Hailstorm a couple times. Well, we should really quick then. I should point out, which we didn't mention earlier. 
the Hailstorm also releases cover albums, cover EPs. Yeah. In between okay. every studio album they do, they release a five-song EP of covers. Yeah. And they've done like four of them, maybe. So anyway. Something like that. Yeah. Um, and I gotta be honest, I was hoping you would go you would have gone another one. Um, because they, they've got a lot of cover songs that I love. They, they, do. Do, a, they do a version of Daft Punk's Get Lucky that I really like. They've got the <laughs> cover Temple of the Dogs, Hunger Strike. Uh, they do some really interesting ones. This one was tough for me because I do have a lot of love for the original one by heart. And I can't agree with you that this one is better. There are things about this song that I like better. I love the, the instrumentation. I love the guitars. Uh, not to say that it's better than Ann Wilson's or Nancy. No, Ann. Yeah. Ann sorry. No, Nancy's Nancy the guitar Wilson, player. Nancy's the guitar player. Sorry. Yeah. 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 It doesn't surpass her. The one, the one criticism, and, and this, this could be my, because I've heard lots of different covers of this song. And for me, the the ironic twist in the narrative during the third verse, where if you're paying attention and you kind yeah. of realize the, the whole twist on it was that she seduced this guy specifically for the purpose of getting pregnant because her husband, she's like, the one thing you could give me was the one thing he couldn't. Yep. Uh, to, she wanted to get pregnant. She wasn't looking for a father. The kid's got a father. She just needed a sperm donor, essentially, for the song. I... I think the original by Ann Wilson is the only time I've gotten that real effect and felt the dramatic irony in that part of the song. It's from Ann Wilson's version. I don't get it from Lizzie's version. I don't get it from other covers that I've heard. It feels like they're, they're not getting it or they're just kind of glossing over it. Um, So that, that for me is kind of like the, the weakness that it doesn't overcome, but Still a good version. It's a rocker. I can listen to this song. I can listen to any any um uh any any hailstorm version. Actually, Tom, one of the other songs that you got for the next episode. Uh, they they also do another one, but I, I won't mention that. But okay. yeah, so yeah, I, I like a lot of their covers by Hailstorm. Um, yeah, and I'll I'll just kind of like leave it at that one. So this this was a good pick. This wouldn't have been mine because I don't think it. I don't think it's better than the original but i do like a lot about this one that's cool though right before tom did yeah. before tom you jump in right i just want to like i i love this about i love this the reason i like war i like i like the fact that these we don't always have to agree on these things like i i welcome discussion i welcome you know intelligent debate about some of these things and everybody's entitled to opinions you know the one thing i don't want to have is all it, it's not necessarily good for our listening audience to have all three of us name songs and just everybody go like, Oh yeah, that's awesome. And stuff. Then, you know, that kind of thing. There's, I, I like the fact that you're, you, you were entitled to say, I don't agree with your choice mm-hmm. and you know, you're going to be wrong half the time. So, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's funny. I'm going to go in the opposite direction here. Um, I never liked this song. It was, and I love heart. I love eighties heart. It's just, it's, it's, and N. Wilson, I think, has one of the best voices in rock and roll. Yes, she but does. I always thought that this song was just way too adult, contempt, late eighties, early nineties. It's just something about it. Maybe I heard it too many times because my we grew. I grew up in a household where, like, you know, unless I was listening to a different station on my own radio, where we always had the, um like that parent friendly top 40 station. <laughs> later in the decades they would be like mix whatever right yeah. the best of the 70s 80s 90s today the AOR. Was, yeah the aor stuff. but the um 
you know, because otherwise my parents would listen to the easy listening station. And again, like light <laughs> FM, I know a whole episode about soft rock, but they played the shit, light FM 106.7 New York light FM. Um, they played the WBLI on long Island 106.1. They played the crap out of the song. And I think that's why I didn't like it, but this made me like this song because I was listening to it. It's like, it just, they brought and, 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 um, Lucy, how did you say? Lizzie. 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 Um, she has a voice, man. And she's yeah. got the voice to cover this. And I was just, I was sitting there listening. I'm like, damn, this is really, really good. I, Ryan, I get what you're saying about the last part with the, with the twist at the end. Um, but even though I was, I was just kind of blown away by this because I had never listened to it before. So, and I might've heard you mentioned it on that episode you were talking about where you did the women in rock and stuff. Um, but yeah, I was just blown away by like how good this was and where it where it kind of brought it back from that adult and kind of really cheesy, um, a little bit cheesy. Because I I had for years, um, and I, I looked it up and I don't think she did. I had thought Diane Warren wrote this, but I, I don't think she did. Um, yeah, so that's why I didn't. I, and I'm not trying to crap over the song you like. I just it was just never one of my favorite heart songs. Um, but the, again, I just I liked everything that they did with this, and I actually just wrote a note down while you were talking about it to check out more songs by the band, because um, I think I've listened to a couple after the last time you mentioned them, so I have to add them to my uh, my Spotify just to just to, to listen to a little bit more of it. Neil can give you a good a good playlist of their original stuff, but yeah, okay. obviously their covers too. They they've got yeah. a couple of covered mm-hmm. EPs, and there, yeah. there's some fun stuff, some songs that you like. Okay. Yeah, I'll be happy to share it. And and awesome. you know, to to her credit, to Lizzie Hale's credit, there's not many people that could pull off doing a heart cover. And no. Wilson's voice is that good, and yeah. Lizzie Hale can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Ryan. This actually like taking it to what we were saying before. Ann Wilson is one of those few people who can do uh, Robert Plant. <laughs> so <I can> yes, <laughs> right. Them, right. Them covering Stairway at the uh, Kennedy yep. Center Honors, I've watched that several times. And then yeah. they have that that cover of uh, the Battle of Evermore on the single soundtrack. Yeah. And they were the love, playing as the love mongers. Um, <laughs> speaking of distinctive voices in and having to cover them, um, Ryan, your next pick. All right. All right. So as Neil mentioned before, we did an episode early on of Fire and Water Records where we talked about the Bee Gees um, and uh, exploring their their history and their songwriting and their craft and kind of had found discovered this new love for them. And one of my favorite Bee Gees songs that I actually kind of made fun of just because they're recording, <laughs> but it was the, it was the apocalypse of the disco, the dance hit from Saturday Night Fever, You Should Be Dancing. And this is a cover of, of You Should Be Dancing as performed by, of all bands, the Foo Fighters.
All right. The original Bee Gees version was recorded in 1976. For context, the Foo Fighters version just came out in 2021. Uh, it was part of like a little weird experiment where Dave Grohl was like, hey, guess what we're going to be doing this week? And they covered six or seven Bee Gees songs and put them on an EP called The DGs, like Dave Grohl. But anyway. Um, so for context, a little bit, I, I have to mention, I have this weird thing about Dave Grohl. <laughs> And by, by weird, I mean my interest and my appreciation of his original work is wildly disproportionate to my affection and genuine love for him as an ambassador of rock and roll music and as a person. Put it another way, I like Foo Fighters. I've never loved Foo Fighters. I don't love any of their songs. There's some good ones, but like it's not something that I, I actively seek out, even going back to Nirvana, they were never my favorite grunge rock band. Um, so there's something about, so, so Dave Grohl as a songwriter and as a, as a, as an originator of music, I'm kind of, eh, Dave Grohl playing band on the run at the white house, 10 feet away from the Obamas and Paul McCartney. I'm like, hell yeah. This is a genuine love for rock and roll, for history, for everything that means that he just embraces body and soul, like the top of his head to the bottom of his toes. Right. I'm not, oh, sorry. I'm, I'm not sure you ever heard me say this before, but I've called Dave Grohl the Ferris Bueller of rock and roll before. That's like, amazing. That's everybody cool. seems yeah. to like him. It, Everybody it does. Sense. Yeah, and and him playing this tribute to Joe Strummer, as I mentioned, like alongside Bruce Springsteen and Elvis Costello. Yes, give me more of that. Dave inducting Joan Jett and Miley Cyrus and, and Tommy James, like uh, them them doing Crimson and Clover. Yes, bring me more of that. Dave Grohl playing the Kennedy Center Honors for The Who, for Led Zeppelin, for Paul McCartney, all these artists. I cannot get enough of that. He just has this infectious joy and love for the history and the legacy yeah. and and what it is and so much so that like he just he, he just seems to like show up ubiquitously like a like a penalty at some of these concerts like is he just a session musician for the Kennedy Honors <laughs> or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame did he just like just like like whoever they're inducting he's like yeah I'll sit in you just need me drums for this one okay whatever like and so like maybe maybe like cover songs are just kind of transcribing popular songs into like new and an alternative music languages and new for new audiences to decipher. And if that's the case, I want Dave Grohl to be the lead translator. I can't think of another rock star of his generation who seems more at home, more comfortable celebrating music and what rock and roll can, uh, can achieve and just sharing it with other generations. Maybe Eddie Vedder. Um, mm. But yeah, just what Dave can do. So with that said, was I surprised to find out that Dave and his band did a, the Foo Fighters rebranded themselves and did this, this BG's cover EP surprised maybe, but certainly not shocked because it's so, of course it seems like something he would do. And for the song, I, I genuinely love it. I, I think they do. They capture this disco electronica sound and repurpose it with rock guitars and, and create this kind of hybrid funk sound. That's just, I, I want to inject this into my brain at least once a day. I want to listen to the song. It's just fun. It's infectious. It's fast. And it, it, it gets me moving. Um, and yeah, it just feels like a celebration and yeah, can't, can't get enough of that. <laughs> 
Um, okay. When you sent me your list and you had originally before we got to our final life, boy, I don't know, our final five, you know, we were talking, we were each were trying to narrow it down to like 12 at the time and everything. <laughs> and I was going through your list. Wasn't crazy about a lot of songs you chose. Got to be honest with you. Wasn't crazy about a lot of them. And then when you so saw I- your final <laughs> five, yep, still not, still not crazy about it. <laughs> this song, I'm so glad you picked. This song was the one I've been waiting this whole podcast to talk about. Um, first of all, it brings me back to our Bee Gees episode where you did the whole, whole like having the nervous cocaine fueled reaction to <laughs> what you do when you pick. That like that that brought me right back to that place. Um, second of all, this breaks all my rules about what makes a good cover song because this is really faithful to the original, mm-hmm. but it's phenomenal. And I don't know if that's a tribute to the actual original song as much as it's a tribute to Dave Grohl and the boot, uh, the, the DG's version of it. I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a very, it's, it's a gray area, but this song just gets you, it gets you up and, and, I don't know. It's it, like, I'm so excited you picked the song. Um, and lastly, real quick, I just want to talk, you know, since we haven't really talked much about the Foo Fighters before, um, there's a whole lot of what you said that is actually true, Ryan. And I'm not sure a lot of people know this. So I'm just going to introduce people to a couple of things. Dave Grohl had a whole uh, there. You can see the whole thing on YouTube, but the the whole story about how he son, uh, what was it? Uh, the studios uh, sunset. Sunset. No. Sun Studio. Sun Studio. No. Is that right? Is it Sun Studio? The one in Van Nuys. No, Sun Studio. Sun Records is, is Memphis. It's Memphis. Memphis. Right? Yeah. Okay. No, Sound City. Sound City. Okay. So Dave Grohl did a whole special uh, called Sound City, and you can watch mm-hmm. it, I think, on YouTube with ads. I don't know where it originally aired, but it's a documentary about him, the history of this famous studio that where they recorded Nevermind with Nirvana, and then all these people recorded there. It's like this dilapidated, old, like, pea-smelling studio in Van Nuys, which I've seen was not far from where I used to live, but Dave bought the original Neve control board from it and had it transported to his place and then brought all these famous people in who recorded there in the past to record a new album with that. So check out Dave Grohl's Sound Sound City. Uh, He also did an HBO series that coincided with the release of a Foo Fighters album called Sonic Highways. And it's a 10 song album recorded in 10 different cities and the the hbo series was 10 different episodes about him going to this new city discovering the culture and what made that city important and playing with local musicians and then writing the lyrics to the song he was going to do while he was there and then recording it so it's a fascinating piece of what ryan talked about just this guy that loves the history of music and like the, he goes to Chicago, New York, uh, Memphis, Atlanta, L.A. Like it's just it's just a really cool eclectic collection of stuff. Um, so I thought that was really cool. So Dave Grohl, yeah, I've got an affinity for. Plus Ryan, as you know, you know he knocked a beer out of my hand once at at, at a bar in in Van Nuys, and then bought me a shot. And I told the waitress, I was like, Oh my god, that's that's Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl just bought me a shot because he knocked my beer out of my hand. She's like, yeah, he does that every weekend. I was like, like, what? She goes, oh, yeah, he's a drunk. He's a raging drunk. I was like, oh, oh, 
okay, so I'm not that. She, she goes, no, he spills people's beers all the time. I was like, <laughs> okay, good to know. And she was like, he lives close enough to walk home. I was like, jeez, oh, got it. Okay, cool. So that's my that's my Dave Grohl scent. But Ryan, <laughs> going back to the song, Ryan, this is the, in my opinion, the best cover song you chose because I absolutely love this freaking song. Yeah, this is so good. Um, and first of all, it, um, the Foo Fighters I have I have like God, Amanda and I have like I think everything up until maybe the mid two thousands, um, and then we just up to the point where we actually just stopped buying CDs. They were always consistent as far as the quality of their albums, even the albums yeah. that weren't that great were always like you you were it was always worth your money so um and and that's so that's i think why i've always appreciated them and yes and and, and everything you think you guys have said about dave roll you know i've, I've written down a couple of things you mentioned because i want to go check them out um the other thing that i know oh, actually just, the, the the other weird kind of dave Grohl thing that's not nirvana or foo fighters mm-hmm. he played drums for uh the queens of the Queen's stone, stone age, age their yeah. uh their big album uh songs from the death Mm-hmm. Uh, he just sat in and just did the drums for that one. That was really cool. Yeah. Well, have you guys have you guys seen the his his documentary called Play? And it's a 23 minute instrumental song that he plays every single instrument on from start to finish. Hmm. And it's it was done for like a charity piece. The documentary is like 30 minutes long. So the first seven minutes of it are he's talking to kids about what makes you want to practice, what makes you want to be a musician. Mm-hmm. And, and he's very humble. And he talks about how he's always searching for the next thing. Like he doesn't think he's got to figure it out right yet. He doesn't treat himself with rock star panache at all. He feels he sounds like somebody that's still a student of music at his level right now. Mm-hmm. But And then got- he bought shots for all those kids. Yeah, and then he yes. bought shots for all those kids. But it's a 23-minute instrumental that he recorded every single part in straight through takes without a break. So if he got 20 minutes into the drum part and fucked up, he started over and recorded it again. And you've got to see this thing. It is so jaw-dropping to watch. And it's not a bad song. It sounds very Foo Fighters-ish with no mm-hmm. lyrics. But it is – he plays everything. Everything on this song it's fantastic you've got to watch it it's just called play i'll have to check that out as far as this song's concerned something i noticed is i, was, I watched the video a couple of times and um it's it, it, it doing, rolls all over the yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the foo fighters in general their music is fast this is a much different type of fast it felt it's like the song, because it's interesting, the song seems so tight that you can't mess around too much with it. And because you can, you because it, it is a, and, and and of course, I even hear this song and I think I picture John Travolta, you know, Saturday <laughs> Fever. But there's, because d- disco, you know, especially Beaches Disco has a very like specific, specific beat and you, you can't deviate too far from it. And um, you can see, it almost seems like he, I read, read an interview, a part of an interview with him talking about this album um, and talking about how it was easy for him to sing. But you could also see how this would actually be a little bit hard to cover because of, you know, how exact you have to be. And um, I really appreciated that, especially because and 
may he rest in peace because I, I this made me miss taylor hawkins even yeah. more yeah but me too you watch him in the video and he can't go full animal you know because <laughs> yeah. he's he's just playing the beat and he has to stay consistent and it's like and it was just i i really had an appreciation for the fact that they were able to pull this off so well because i think it's deceptively hard you know it's 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 not as easy as you think it is to cover something by the Bee Gees. and uh and, and like i said they they did it's i think six bg songs on this ep mm-hmm. taylor oh, yeah. sings some of them too taylor sings mm-hmm. at least one of them yep all right um my next is actually another 70s cover but it is not a disco it's from the same um around the same year um the original song was by fleetwood mac uh but this is sung by hole and the song is gold dust woman So this is a Stevie Nicks penned track. It's the last track on Rumors um, to this day, a top 10 album of mine and one that has no skips on it, to be honest with you. Um, this version Word. was... What? Sorry. Word. Yeah, I agree. agree. Yeah. It's such a great totally. album. Um, this version is on the soundtrack to The Crow City of Angels, which was the sequel to the 1994 movie. The 1994 Crow soundtrack, of course, being easily one of the most like kind of biggest soundtracks of the 90s especially for uh you know alternative uh alternative music i remember my college roommate bought the cd sophomore year neither of i don't think either of us ever actually went and saw the movie um and i don't think the movie did very well but of all the tracks that we were listening to this jumped out for both of us and uh this is whole this is 90 yes is 96 fall of 96 or early 97 and so this is between live through this and I think Celebrity Skin Celebrity comes Skin. out the next year. Celebrity Skin was like 98? 98. And, and uh, again, just, just a tangent on whole a little bit. I think we need a little more nostalgia for this band. You know, I can hear... I can hear the cranberries and the breeders and belly on my local modern rock station. They never play whole. And I'm like, play some whole. Anyway, um, so you listen to Nick's performance on the original, and it's it is a great song. So this is another song that's a little bit hard to cover and and do better or do something different with. And, it, and it's her typical what's what you expect from Stevie Nicks, especially of that era, that sort of witchy woman um stuff. Um it's 70s era Fleetwood Mac at the height of their powers and their cocaine. And, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you said that. <laughs> and uh and, and it's again it's exactly what you want. It's a great closer too. It's one of the great all-time cl- album closers. This is it's trashy. And it because it's 
because it's Courtney Love, and I'm <laughs> here for it. Um, they kind of do what the Bangles did to Simon and Garfunkel. You know, like they 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 just give this song a really sharp edge. It complements Love's voice so well, mm-hmm. and it's a good example of um, good '90s soundtracks for crap movies. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was a theme. But they, but they, this was this is where you would. This is the, my pick off of a uh, another pick off of a soundtrack. But the '90s had soundtracks like this all the time, and they would get people to just cover stuff. And um, yeah, damn, this song is just even almost 30 years later, it's um, this should be on the air somewhere. Somebody should be playing this. I love this one. I, I, I'm so glad that you picked this one. Um, and actually, I, I mentioned it. I was sort of previewing it. Uh, Hailstorm does a cover of this one, too, mm. uh, on, on one of their albums. And mm-hmm. I, I like that version, too. I think I like this version more. Um, but yeah, like I'm right with you. Like, I... I saw the Crow City of Angels, didn't care for it, didn't like it. But mm-hmm. I remember when this video came out, because um, I was I was a kid, I was still in school watching MTV, and I heard the song, and I really dug it. And up to that point, I wasn't as big on Hole. Like, I, yeah, uh, I. with uh, um, lived through this, I liked, I liked Miss World, I liked that song a lot, but mm-hmm. I wasn't as big on the song that came out right after Kurt's suicide. Uh, doll Parts? Yes, I didn't really care for dial parts. Um, so I was kind of ambivalent on whole. And then I saw this video and I loved the song. I love Courtney and Melissa off tomorrow in the video, their whole vibe. Yep. Uh, very, uh, very sexy. I yep. love the two of them uh, with together. And then, of course, dad sees me watching this video. He's like, oh, yeah, that's a cover. <laughs> And he tells me about the original, the the Fleetwood Mac. So this was my introduction to Fleetwood Mac. Mm. Ah. He, played the, he played the original for me, and I was like, "Okay, it's not just the whole. It's, this is a damn good song. Like this, yeah. the original one is really good." And then probably I I probably kept the album spinning and listened to the whole album. Then maybe, um, but I, I he would have yeah he would have played that so much. So I knew a lot of those uh, those uh, Fleetwood Mac songs. But yeah, the um. I think Gold Dust Woman, I think it's my favorite Fleetwood Mac song, but I really, really, I have always liked this this version. And then, yeah, because of this, I got Celebrity Skin, which I loved. I thought that was a great mm. whole album. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of tracks on that one that I really, really got into. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, this is just fun. It's just, yeah, like I, I like the kind of trashy, rocky version of the of a great like, 70s hit, but yeah. Yeah, I agree with everything you guys said. I actually don't have anything else to add to it other than uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, I was more I was more familiar and a bigger fan of early hole than you guys probably were. Mm. Um, And Eric Erlinson was the guitar player in the band and has gone on to do other things, too. And once the hole broke up, he started he played in other name bands that people would know. I thought that his guitar work in this really is what elevated it beyond the Fleetwood Mac version of it. but yeah, I mean, it's 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 no surprise that you got to take a real junkie to sing a song by you know a, a junkie at the another time. one. Like yeah, yeah, like this is nobody else should have done this cover but Courtney Love. So. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, Ryan, also a uh, quick like side footnote: Did you know that this song was produced by Rick Ocasek from the Cars? I didn't. Yeah. Oh, surprisingly, nice. interesting. I didn't know that either. Yep. Ah, 
I find it interesting that this is your gateway to Fleetwood Mac, considering you were probably alive in 92 during the Clinton campaign. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. When I say my, my gateway, like, I mean, like uh, oh. giving a serious listen because. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. That, yeah. He means it. Was... He means it took drugs to get him into it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, cause it should have been little lies <laughs> for me from back in 87, but it was no, uh, God, I don't remember what mine was. It was, Probably around this time, anyway. Anyway, that—that's a whole other, a whole other conversation. Um, but Neil, uh, we are up to you again. So this is number four. Yes, we are getting down to it, and it's been too long since I did a harmonica song, so I had to come mm-hmm. back to it. We got to bring back a harmonica song. So I'm doing Poison's cover of the '80s hit by the Romantics, "What I Like About You." So this song was actually kind of an easy one for me. Um, easy one for me because I hated the original song. Absolutely despised it. And so it wasn't hard to improve upon it in my eyes It was and in my ears. It was really simple. But this one also kind of, it was kind of weird because Poison at this point in the 2000s had become kind of a joke. Brett Michaels had reality TV shows about trying trying to find his next wife and stuff Dude, like that. Rock of that. Love is iconic. Though. Rock of Love, that's <laughs> it. That's it. C.C. DeVille, who was a great guitarist in his own right, could not stay sober and had just become a mess of himself. And uh, so I had gone to parody Brett Michaels in for Halloween, and Ryan has two, and uh, you know, uh, did him for like karaoke and stuff like that. Um it was they became kind of like a guilty pleasure because they'd almost become kind of a joke. Then all of a sudden, at one point out of nowhere in the 2000s, they decided to get back together and record an album of famous cover songs. And they did some great, great cover songs. They did a great version of Bowie's Suffragette City. They did We're an American Band. They did like so there's some really good quality covers. Now they all sound like 80s rock poison. So mm-hmm. it they're not trying to be something other than themselves, but it works on this particular song this particular song took what i thought was just a generic 80s pop radio hit and made it a great rock and roll anthem and again like i said 
this this song i think rocks and i can understand why it was hit when written i hated the original so much that this song when i heard it i was like finally <laughs> i've got a reason to listen to this freaking song so there you go maybe it's a guilty pleasure track for me i don't know uh, the first note i have is nice harmonica work <laughs> Um, to me this feels like this would have been a great staple for them during their live shows and their live concerts Um, in terms of coming up with doing an all covers album 20 years into their career obviously like where they were like in 2007 like it feels like it's a cash grab and I'm sure it was (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and with with that in mind, it's it's kind of hard for me to get into the spirit of it and find that. But it is a good version. I I don't have the same problem with the original. I like the romantics version too. So this one seems more uh, sounds more like that. But it's it's yeah. I, I think they they find they find some fun with it and they find something interesting with it. Good. So yeah. I have a lot of nostalgia for the original because I mean I love it and, and they played it at so many school dances and it was a you know that so that was a that was a bop that got everybody on the on the dance floor. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed this. What was interesting, it kind of reminded me of when um, if you remember this from the Wedding Singer soundtrack, the President of the United States of America covering video killed the radio star. Oh yeah, um, that sort of thing. Um, what was interesting was that it's like I was like, oh yeah, this is really good and and yes. It's, killer harmonica work um but the funny thing was is i wrote this down the way this cover sounds i'm waiting i it should be sung this should be a deleted track from uh-huh the john cougar mellencamp album from like 1983 and now i want to hear mellencamp in 1983 cover what i like about you because there's and i i absolutely freaking love Mellencamp but um it just it sound it, it is very much of it it's almost roots rock and it's in its approach it's it's because they didn't go they didn't I was glad they didn't go like full, they sound like poison but they didn't go like full you know talk dirty to me poison where it's like you know um and uh, the video was kind of cute with the whole yearbook bit and everything but uh but yeah it's I you know I I, I enjoyed it it was it was it would have been a decent this would have been on a soundtrack in the 90s yeah, so, like it's sort yeah. of like we're going to get somebody to cover to do a cover of a song. So, yeah, but no, and probably in a bad movie. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. Um, but no, I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought this brought this by because it was it was worth the uh, it was worth a few minutes of listening to. And I, I, I did enjoy it. Um, Ryan, your penultimate pick. All right. Um, well, I needed to have a Bob Dylan cover. Um, <laughs> I, I, I previewed a whole bunch of them that I already like back when we were talking about Neil's first selection with that Champion Freedom, but I'm going to for an, a much more old school version. Um, the song is It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, as covered by Van Morrison's band Them. Stands 
your orphan with his gun Crying like a fire in the sun Look out baby, the saints are coming through When Neil and I recorded a very daily Valentine's special a couple of months ago, we included uh, a Van Morrison song. And I, I want to preface this all again, that if Morrison's statements or his actions during the COVID pandemic upset or offend people, I understand that. I hear that. Um, as an artist, though, I can't deny he crafted some incredible music and a lot of songs that he did. I grew up listening to and have a very strong place in my heart and in my sort of nostalgic um, back catalog of music. Um, this song, this is Van Morrison's band Them covering Bob Dylan's song that was recorded in 1965 uh, for the album Bringing It All, All Back Home. That was the original Dylan version. Mm-hmm. Them covered it one year later, 1966. <laughs> um, between them, Van Morrison had performed the song live a couple of times while he was touring solo. They decided to put it on the album, but uh, they decided to put it on the album Them again. Um, but they were really struggling kind of in the recording to, to find the right, the right tone or the right style for it. They were really, they, they, it was, it was just a struggle in the studio. So they temporarily shelved it and it looked like it wasn't going to be on the album. The producer, Tommy Scott took another look at it and kind of significantly rearranged the song. He added some blues riffs and more keyboards to kind of bring the background music to the fore uh, and change the tempo of it. That the them version, I this grammatically sounds weird, but them's version is pretty successful <laughs> in the that years. Sound weird. Yeah, uh, in the years after, several other bands covered them's version of, of the song, uh, and uh, had other versions sort of indebted to the Van Morrison style more than the Bob Dylan version. So, what does this have to do with me? Well, where I come into the scene is thirty years later, uh, back. One of my favorite artists sampled the music from the Them's version for It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, for his song Jackass uh, that appeared on the seminal album Odelay. So imagine Ryan in 1996 lounging about listening to this dope new Beck album and repeatedly listening to the prettiest song on the album, Jackass, when dad comes in and tells me that the music of this haunting <laughs> ballad is sampled from a Van Morrison song. And dad brings me to the music room to play me them's version. But then he says that not only that, but this is them is a cover of the Bob Dylan song and he plays me the original one. So at this point, I am trying to figure out if Beck triple reverse engineered a Dylan cover <laughs> and who exactly gets paid royalties given this weird situation. And anyway, all I can say it's one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs. The original one is, but I really appreciate this them cover. Um, Morrison's vocals are a lot more expressive and a lot more clear. Uh, they give it this original kind of this, this weird bluesy funky kind of jam session that I think is a very distinctive, it's a very identifiable melody. And, but really my, my love first version comes out of my love for that Beck song that samples the music for this one. So the, the fact that I am including this in this episode, it's, this is a weird outlier where I like it, but I like it for these 
weird apocryphal reasons that are just hard to explain, but it's it's like a stepsister of a favorite song or something like that. You know what's weird about this song, Ryan, is I'm pretty sure mathematically, if one more artist comes out and samples Beck's version of it, it becomes a Bob Dylan song again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I think that's the way it works. Yeah, uh, squared, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, also, I wonder if, like, when them got booked for gigs in the 60s and they would show up and then they would walk in and they'd be like, hey, are you guys the band? They'd be like, yeah, we are them. Like, that would be, that would be such, they, people would think, man, you guys got to go back to school. Um, okay, so my first note on this is, <laughs> Ryan, way to squeeze another Van Morrison track onto this list. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was my list. No, um, I love this version. I had heard this a long, long time ago. I always knew it. I believe it or not, in my earliest days of hearing this song, and I don't know how old I was, I think this was around a time that I mistook Van Morrison for Mick Jagger quite a bit. I thought that this, voice-wise, vocally, I thought that this was like an old Rolling Stones song. Um, mm. And then I think dad probably corrected me and was like, no, but there are certain parts of Van Morrison that sound very, very Mick Jaggery. Um, I love the song. I love the song. It's, it's great. I, I, it's, it's probably the oldest track that we got considering it's a cover from the sixties is, mm -hmm. is strange. Um, but I, I thought this was a good track. I would, I would almost want to compare Van Morrison's vocals to, to Brian Jones, the other singer of the stones, more than Mick Jagger, but I can't think of now. Hmm. Anyway. I do have to thank you. It's been bugging me where I've heard the song before. Not the song, but I'm like, the keyboard sounds you really familiar. You recognize the back song. And I was like, the back, and you said, <laughs> like, yes, that's right. Um, <laughs> so I got the answer to my question. Um, yeah, this is really interesting. So like, you know, like we said, we talk about how they cover, people covered Dylan. Um, I think one of the more famous, aside from Hendrix, one of the more famous covers of Dylan to come out of the 60s was the birds covering Mr. Tambourine Man, mm -hmm. which is really melodic, right? Because it's Crosby and, and them. Um, this, you know, Morrison has a distinct voice um, and it, it it plays well more to kind of melodic type of stuff. And, and I... It was really interesting to me. I'd never actually heard this version before. Um, I became, I, I had years ago, I had uh, Bringing It All Back Home on tape. Um, I think I listened to Subterranean Homesick Blues more than any other song on that album. Um, and then I don't know what hell is the tape. Uh, and I got, really discovered this song a few years ago when I was teaching a Joyce Carol Oates short story called Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Which, um, if you ever read that and you listen to this song, there's a lot of correlation between the two. In fact, she she dedicates the song to Dylan, um, the story to Dylan. Um, but that aside, I'd, I'd, I'd never heard this. It was like, yeah, this was it was very, very interesting. It was a lot different um, and and distinctive. And I really did enjoy that. Um, and, and I'm going to go back and listen to it now that I've solved the riddle of Beck. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, I, I did I did enjoy it. But I I don't know um, I don't know if I would if I would listen to it as much as I have listened to the original version, uh, which is which is a favorite Dylan song of mine. I I did I, I think I had to go back and check though I was like because Dylan does not get any credit in the back like for like because mm. there's no vocals or anything it's just sampling the music arrangement which was unique to the to them or something or completely different so yeah. Yeah. all right so that leaves me to 
take us to our the end of our fourth picks. And mine is a cover of a Dire Straits song. This is the Indigo Girls covering Romeo and Juliet. So serenade He's laying everybody low He's got a love song that he made He finds a convenient street light And he steps out of the shade And he says something like You and me, baby How about it? Juliet says, hey, it's Romeo He nearly gave me a heart attack Yeah, well, he's underneath my window Now she's singing Hey, la, my boyfriend's back oh, You shouldn't come around here Singing up to people like that Oh, anyway, what you gonna do about it? Juliet, the dice were loaded from the start And I bet, and you exploded into my heart And I forget, I forget movie song When you gonna realize it's just that the time was wrong Julie Okay, now to plug one of my other shows, if you listen to the most recent episode of Required Reading with Tom and Stella, we covered that play and I went, took us into the show with the Dire Straits version, and I took us out of the show with this version. So you can hear a little bit of both if you listen to all two, two and a half hours of me and Stella talking about Shakespeare. Um, I first, you know, it's funny. It was like, I think um, all four of the picks that I've done so far, I heard the cover version before I heard the original. The fifth pick is actually the opposite way around. I was very familiar with the original version before I heard the cover. Um, I first heard this because uh, I started college in the fall of 1995, and um, at least one person on my floor had the Indigo Girls album, Rite of Passage. Um, Galileo got played a lot. Yeah. Um, and we would listen to this when my friends were taking a break from, you know, the Dead and Fish and um, and the Pulp Fiction soundtrack and the Reservoir Dog soundtrack, you know, the just to, let's let's go through the rotation of whatever that was, was like the early Lilith Fair era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was this, and 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 this song would come on, and it's just the acoustic. It's an acoustic mm-hmm. guitar, and and it blew me away. And then I sought out the original. And the original is a lot different. Um, and I love Dire Straits. I love Mark Knopfler. Um, and I think this is a great example of how two different approaches to one song work equally. I could listen to either one and I enjoy, enjoy them. Or the original is romantic. It's sweet. It has a sense of longing. Um, it actually kind of is a good way to convey the, the, the loss part of Romeo and Juliet. You know, the second half of the play that kind of gets overlooked in the whole great love story type of, of songs you tend to get out of Romeo and Juliet. It's like you, you kind of have to address the death part. And they, he kind That's of does it. As Milhouse Van Houten said, I don't understand. We started off like Romeo and Juliet, but it ended up in tragedy. Yeah. 
but yeah and and, and they, they it's like Knopfler when Knopfler sings it you can hear the tragedy even though he's not ad- addressing the death this is like in a great way there's there's a there's pain in this song and um, especially when she's just she's belting out you know Romeo's and just missing Juliet it's it's the longing is way more passionate I, I like the arrangement um you know the original song isn't that elaborate either but this is stripped down even more and um it's as a cover it's always stuck with me this was this was one of the like when i was making up my original list this was one of the ones i circled first like i have to bring this up mm-hmm. and talk about it um and uh i can't remember which of the indigo girls sings this i think it's uh i can't off the top of my head but um but yeah i just absolutely love it i absolutely love it for the for just the, the passion she puts in behind the vocals of um uh, of a cover of a song that in when you hear Mark Knopfler sing it, it has a lot more of a easy sort of a feel to it. Um, I wasn't familiar with this version uh, until you put it on your list. I, I hadn't heard this one. Um, but the original Mark Knopfler version is an all-time favorite of mine. I, I love that one. So I was like, all right, let's let's see what you got here. And the first time I listened to it, I was like, I, I was going to reject this one. I was like, I don't know, Tom. I'm, I'm not sure <laughs> what, what you're getting out of this one, but I'm not getting it. But the more I did, I, I gave it several listens. And the thing that I definitely zeroed in on, and what you, you pointed out to was like the emotion and the pain that she's bringing to the song that Nafler is much more antiseptic in his delivery, much more mm-hmm. casual. And I wonder, that actually made me think about if there's something – and Neil, maybe you would even you'd have more of an awareness of this. I don't know if he does something with the time signature or the arrangement of his song, but the, the way Mark Knopfler delivers the lyrics and the vocals, it's it's almost a little bit more casually conversational. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in other cover versions of it, including this one and one that Neil, I think you'll talk about later, mm-hmm. the the vocals feel more rushed. It's a very talky song, or, or it feels like they're, they're like there's more information in the lyrics that need to be conveyed quicker that it doesn't seem like Knopfler has a problem delivering. And I wonder if that's a timing or a tempo thing. Well, yeah. Yeah. If you want me to speak to that, um, the time signature for Mark Knopfler's version, the Dire Straits song is actually faster. Uh, the temp- tempo and the time signature is, is faster and his finger picking almost match the lyrics so you don't feel like the lyric is rushed because the song is sped up a little bit whereas these versions you're talking about a little bit more strumming uh it feels at least in my opinion it feels like 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 the edwin mccain version which i'm i'm a really big fan of is really slowed down you know it's really Mm. like the tempo of that song is slowed down to the point where that song is almost eight minutes long yeah um that that kind of thing uh so that's that's just my opinion I also think it's interesting that I associate the Dire Straits version of the song with the first time I ever heard it, which was in the 90s, and it was in the movie Empire Records. And that, <laughs> that, oh, yeah. Yeah. and that was like a love scene where everybody's fallen in love during the day. It was like kind of like you lose all sense of the tragedy of the song mm-hmm. because of the placement in the movie and what the visuals that you get with it. So I almost kind of lost track of the fact that it's about this like the, like the end of the story kind of thing until i heard this song um and probably like tom you know there was a lot of people i knew that had a lot of these like girl girl heavy group mm-hmm. cds and stuff mm-hmm. and this was you know the Edie burkells and stuff like that and this this was on that list and um 
I think, I, I, think then, it, I think the song was also in the movie Can't Hardly Wait in the 90s. Is. And I don't think oh, it was on the that. soundtrack to either movie. No. I don't think it was on the official soundtrack to either one, but it was also really? in the movie. Yeah, uh, it wasn't on the soundtrack to Empire Records. No, it's not on Empire. I don't know about Can't Hardly Wait, but you're right. It's not on the Empire Records soundtrack. It's not on the Can't Hardly Wait soundtrack, because I remember okay. like I, I loved the song after I heard it in that movie, and I ended up going out and getting a Dire Straits Greatest Hits, partly because mm-hmm. of that. Um, yeah, um, it, yeah, so all I'd like Tom, I everything you said about this, the reason you picked this, I think is the passion she brings to the vocal floors me and makes you almost like lifts the, the hair up on your arm kind of thing. You're like, oh my God, like this is somebody that's really feeling what she's singing. And I didn't get that sense from like kind of what Ryan said, you know, Mark Knopfler is kind of casually just telling the story, whereas she's she's like it's a heart-wrenching performance of it. Um Personally, I, I gravitate towards the Edward McCain version because I think I heard that one more often and mm-hmm. kind of grew to And that's a version I play when I'm strumming the guitar, like that kind of thing I play. Um, but this was a good choice. And it's it's if if people aren't familiar with it, boy, man, she it's gut wrenching. It's that it is really good. All right, Neil, you got one more. Where are we going? I do have one more. All right, so. I said at the very beginning, I'm going a very, very guitar-heavy version of cover songs tonight. So I can't think of any other way to wrap up my list than with Van Halen's version of The Kinks' You Really Got Me. Of all the songs that I chose tonight, this this one had the most impact on me personally. As we've discussed previously, Van Halen was one of the main reasons I picked up a guitar in the first place. Uh, you guys were along with me. We did a whole show on the innovation and originality of Eddie Van Halen as a guitar player. Uh, so when I first heard this song, I was blown away, like literally, literally blown away. Like I didn't even know that was a guitar how did he get some of those notes out and some of those sounds and stuff? Um, but strangely enough, as innovative and, and epic as Eddie Van Halen was in changing the course of guitar, this song was a riff that I could play. It's not a hard guitar riff to play. Um, and I that was the thing. And we're talking, I mean, I, I was like still probably borderline junior high school maybe elementary age when, you know, playing like a Sears guitar with a speaker in it kind of thing, like in a nine volt battery. That was like my first guitar that I played. So, but I could play that. That I could do that over and over again. So I was like, Hey, I'm Van Halen. Yay. Look at me. Um, So this one, 
you know, it may go down, you know, we've talked at the very beginning of the show about like some of the most iconic cover songs ever, like Whitney Houston's uh, uh, I Will Always Love You and stuff. This I would probably put on that list in terms of the general scope of what this song did, um, how well this song was received. It was their first single. It was the single that radio put out to get Van Halen noticed, uh, get them on the radio before. Uh, you know, for all the things we talked about at the very beginning of the show, this was kind of what you had to do to introduce a band that nobody had heard of. So put out a song that people know and, and show them doing something completely different and original to it. So there's all that. I also think it's funny. And the last thing I'll say about this um, is it took me a long, long time to know that this was a cover song. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> I don't think I heard the, you know, granted, I, I got, you know, I heard this Van Halen version when I was probably 12 you know, 11, 12 years old, something like that. I don't even think I heard the kinks version of it until one day, my dad probably took Ryan and I into the bedroom and said, here, this is where it came from. <laughs> yeah. And I think just the fact that it's, it's more popular and better regarded than the original, which the original kinks version is a good song. Sure. Um, but just because it's, it, I think everything that you said, the fact that it was like their first, their smash hit right out of the gate, feels like they just owned it they just stole it and it's a van halen song now in yeah. perpetuity like yeah they just, yeah they just took it that's over. a good way of putting about it yeah. yeah 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 um i think i first heard this i want to say that this wasn't my introduction to the band because my introduction to the band was mostly through van the van hagar years um although i'd heard jump uh prior to that but this was my introduction to a lot of the earlier stuff because they would play this on the classic rock radio station i tended to listen to back in high school wbab long island's home of rock and roll um how many and, radio stations are you gonna plug tonight oh i'll plug all of them <laughs> um none of the none well, of which, do, none wait of which wait do light fm around. again 106.7 wltw <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> just the trauma um some of the best ones i listened to didn't even aren't even around anymore <laughs> Shout out to the HFS in DC. Um, so uh this has some swagger to it more than the kink. And I I knew the kinks version before I even heard this version because I'd I'd heard I'd heard it before. Um this has some because Dave knows exactly what he's doing with this song. Yeah. And yeah. and that's what I love about it. Um, of course, sometimes they would play just the song, but sometimes I guess if um I don't know if the DJ had to go to the bathroom or something, they'd play eruption and then this. Right. And I think the first time I heard that, I was blown away because, um, you know, that's that whole intro and that just and then and then into this cover that this with with such a great segue. Um, and so I would, you know, if, if you're, you can listen to this on its own, but if you really want a real treat, listen to the two back to back because it's mm -hmm. just it's so just sonically brilliant and such. Yeah, the uh, the final note about this and how the reason I chose this and what it means to me in particular was the very first rock band I joined when I was like 13 or 14 years old. And none of us could really play instruments. We just started a rock band because we had instruments. Mm. Um, but uh, everybody was like, hey, bring one song to the band that you want us to learn. And we was trying to be fair. We were trying to be a democracy. So we had one dude that brought Devo. And one dude brought like Thomas Dolby and one dude brought, yeah, it was, it was the worst. One brood, dude brought you two and I brought this song 
this was the one song. So the very first song I learned in an actual band was You Really Got Me. So Very cool. All right, Ryan. What's your All last right. Uh, we are taking uh the, we're taking the, the 1980s new wave synth sound and just blasting the hell out of it with some punk rock. Um, we're going with the Don Henley song, Boys of Summer, as covered by the Ataris. Don Henley version was from 1984. The Ataris covered it for the album So Long Astoria in 2003. Um, this was a late addition to my list because I was really counting on one of you guys to include it uh, so I could talk about something I else. I would have, but... but I forgot about it. it I was... would have picked it. it. It was like, it was between this and my next song. So yeah. it was it so, was almost there. And the, your next song I could I had on my list too. So yeah, yeah we're kind of some, right there. But um this was just this was part of like the, this the sound and this wave that was coming out of punk rock just adapting or covering 80s synth new wave hits and just blasting them out and taking what is familiar as i mentioned earlier and just putting in this new context the ataris don't change the song but the speed and the tempo change the feel of it i i like i believe like henley's song is about looking back it's about the past nostalgia this version, though, feels like it's looking forward to an endpoint that is coming up. Like, in the summer isn't over yet, but it's we're getting close, so mm-hmm. it's time to act now. So, like, there's like a call to action about this. Like, do something about that. Very so, indicative of the album it was on, too. Yeah, mm, yeah. it was sort of a concept album. So, anyway, this was this was was just one of those where uh, I heard the song and I was like. This is just pure fun. Like, there's just yeah. like, the, the, that was just like the word that just came to my mind when I heard this one. It was like fun, and I've been waiting for years for somebody to cover all she needs. All she wants to do is dance, and take the same, <laughs> take the same like spin on it as this one. But yeah, yeah. Um, boy, I I was almost embarrassed that I forgot about this song when you picked it because I was a huge fan of the Ataris and this album in particular, and I I hate the fact that I let this one slide by. So I'm glad you picked it and brought it back. Um, this album, honestly, So Long a Story, it comes to as close to one of those no-skip albums as I can think of. It's right yeah. up there with some of the classic rock records of all time With that don't, don't have a single song I want to miss. Um, I actually saw this band 
uh, at the Wiltern in LA in 2013 when they were doing the 10 year anniversary of this album and they played the entire album. And it was weird because the band had been broken up for a while and I don't know the circumstances about what happened or how long they were apart, but they made a big production about them being the first time back together in a room kind of thing. Um, from what I remember, and it was like all over K Rock Radio, one hundred six point seven K Rock. There you go, Tom. That's for you. Um, but uh, it was a really big deal that they were getting back together for the ten year anniversary, and we saw them, and and I saw them, and it was good. It was a good show. It wasn't as good. It didn't match the energy of like they had like a live at the House of Blues show on tour from this album in two thousand three when they were in their prime, and they just killed it. Um, so. Yeah, the the only thing I want to add, Ryan, to this fact that you chose this as a cover, there's a cool story I'd heard about why he picked this song to cover. And I thought that was a really neat story. I don't know if you've heard it. Uh, the lead singer's name is Christopher Rowe. He talked about why they did this. He said his grandma, when he grew up, he had a grandma in Florida that he used to go visit every summer. And one time he went down there shortly after a hurricane. So the Florida was kind of devastated and there you couldn't go to Disneyland. You couldn't go to the beaches. You couldn't do all the fun stuff that a kid wants to do. So he was kind of trapped in her, I guess, house for like two weeks with nothing to do. So she took him to a record store and let him buy one record. And he picked out Don Henley's. What was it? What was the uh, building? The perfect beast. Does that sound right? I want to say that's the album. Yeah. Whatever album, yeah, I think that's I it. Think whatever, that's whatever album. album it was on. That was the, so anyway, he picked that out at a record store when he was like a child and his grandma and him listened to it that whole two weeks. So that was his connection to her. And then when they were going in to record this album, So Long Astoria, his grandma passed away oh. and he wanted to add a cover song. And so he chose it. So I thought that that was really, it was really kind of poignant and kind of a nice tribute to his grandma. But all that aside, this just kicks ass as a cover song. This absolutely kicks ass. This destroys live in concert, and it is so good. And he even added a little spin on it by adding the black flag sticker on the Cadillac mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like, there's some things. The there, day, yeah. yeah, there's some there's some cool things about it. But this is just an incredible, incredible cover on an incredible album that didn't need cover songs. So mm-hmm. that's where I'm at with this. So yeah. great choice. Yeah. How the hell is this album 20 years old? I don't know. Because Ryan, I didn't need to listen to this song. I've had this album in rotation yeah, for I still twenty play years. I still, I still play, play this album. It's Me it's too. on. I have not Me lately, too. but I've worked out to this album. Um, yeah. It's By the way, so- they are doing a twenty year reunion now too. Oh, I've seen I've seen that in Google news feeds and stuff that they're getting back together again. Yeah, and I love both versions of the song too because I love the Don Henley version. Um, the black flag thing I thought was I remember um, some of the more snobby people I was around back in 2003 didn't like the song for whatever you know you're 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 stepping on my toys type of way that some people get with with covers that they, you know they, they get a little too precious with some songs and things like that the the black flag thing just to go on this is the I literally wrote this down to go all English teacher on us <laughs> um so with don henley and the, the 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 line in the original version is out on the road today i saw a deadhead sticker on a cadillac yeah. and i've always taken that line to mean him lamenting the way his generation sold out when the ataris are doing it i think to me it's like what happened to all of the first gen 
punks like our older siblings and our older cousins the ones who introduced us to all this music you know have they sold out like kind of like a contemplation of this because you know this is at least a full generation removed from the sex pistols and the clash and even the bands of the 80s the dead kennedys the circle jerks one of my favorite bands the replacements you know and wondering like what happened to them and and what happened or what happened to the people who like you know got you on this music you know um i i'm i'm the oldest of two but i had older i had a lot of older cousins (laughs) so and friends both siblings so they were the ones who introduced me to stuff so i i did the sort of like it's almost like he is he is in the present and he's wondering about the you know what happened to his and and maybe perhaps he's looking the future wondering if that'll happen to him but that's me again that's what you put on the ap exam essay (laughs) um yeah but no it's i mean it's such a great cover and they they used to play the video on uh mtv when when this was when videos on mtv were still a going concern in the the waiting days of the trl years but yeah like ryan said this was sort of there was this really small and I'll, i'll get to my song in a minute but there was this like mini genre in the late 90s into the early to mid 2000s of punk ska alternative covers of 80s tunes i think it was spurred on by the 80s nostalgia kick that started around 95 or 96 um because that's when you have and it picked up in around 97 98 because that's when gross point blank hmm. romy michelle's high school reunion and the wedding singer came out and all three well, it became of those, a cottage industry yeah it did because yeah. all three of those had um 80s, soundtracks. 80s soundtracks yeah and, and for those of us who never called the number to get um you know totally 80s off television and that sort of stuff and you remember those but like you have the presence of the united states of america covering video the radio star um the one i think a lot of people remember is alien ant farm covering smooth criminal yeah i remember that. and that got lots of play on trl i could never tell if they were doing that because they liked the song or if they were doing it for a joke mainly because I only remembered it through the video and the video was like just beating to death. The fact that Michael Jackson used to grab his crotch. (laughs) So, um, and uh, not a surf covered. If you leave, no doubt did a great cover of it's my life on their um, greatest hits album. The Donna's cover dancing with myself, which is a really, really good cover. That's, That's good. Yeah. There is a punk goes the eighties compilation with a bunch of bands there is and if you ever want to seek this out this is really fun listening there is the duran duran tribute album a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of alternative punk and ska bands covering duran duran's tunes it's from like 98 99 you have eve's plum the mr t experience the deftones real big fish Leths and jake jimmy eat world goldfinger goldfinger covers rio and it's really fun um and then of course you have the entire career of a band called me first in the gimme gimme's which did nothing but punk covers of 80s tunes and stuff. And it's, again, there are times when bands do this and I think they're really having fun with it. And there are times when bands are doing this where I think they're just kind of, they think they're being funny. So it's it's, it's kind of hard to discern, but um, but overall, um, I just remember that. And so my pick out of this genre, because I wanted this little, this little subgenre to be represented and in, in the Ataris is one of them, but mine is Save Ferris covering Dexie's Midnight Runners Come on, Eileen. Come on, Eileen. 
so as I mentioned uh, earlier, this out of the five that I picked, this was the this was the only one that I had heard the original version before I had heard the cover, <laughs> and I was very familiar. It was familiar with the original because between hearing it played at dances and and stuff because they would play a lot of different things and seeing it on eighties compilations and you know etc. I, I lo- and I love the original version. I found this somewhere in ninety eight or ninety nine. Um, I want to, I don't remember where I first heard this. I might've heard this at a party or something. I think I got the album out of a discount bin. I, I, I just, somehow I ended up with the same Ferris album <laughs> and, and I'd heard about the band and um, it was my junior year of college when I was going through this, like listening to ska phases, why I have like five mighty, mighty Boston CDs. It's college. Everybody experiments in college, but, um, but you have like this really, really nothing really profound i really like this version it's fun it's meant to be fun monique powell who's the lead singer of um say ferris has a wonderful voice and her voice does wonders for this song i think it's a great use of the horns because sometimes little horns in a punk scott thing are just kind of superfluous they're there because the genre calls for it i think they do a great job integrating the horn section in here and of course they have that ska guitar riff that's ubiquitous throughout the throughout the genre, but I, I just, I wanted something fun and I wanted something that was one of my favorites out of this whole mess of songs that, that came out in that, in this period of people covering eighties and nineties music. Yeah. Uh, as I was kind of alluding to, I think you and I could have flipped because you could have mm-hmm. had boys of summer as your last song. And I easily could have had this one um, out of high school and into college, somewhere around one of those years, one of those summers, uh, I had a job painting and I was working with a couple of guys from a Christian ska band. <laughs> and that's, that was all they played. They were just like, we were just playing. So I, I heard like everything. I just like all the, all the bands that you were just mentioning, uh, all of that plus real big fish. Um, <laughs> I have that album just, too. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'm sure that this was where I first heard this version. Um, and I loved it because I knew the original version too. I was I was familiar with it, and of course the the great Simpsons joke when uh, Homer won a Grammy and Lisa calls him up and she's like, "You beat Dexy's Midnight Runners," and he's like, "Well, you haven't heard the last of them." <laughs> but, um, but yeah, just the the something about this one, just the the fun of the sound and the production, and just that voice. And we haven't. We haven't talked about it as much on this episode, but we're definitely going to talk about it on part two when we get to Fire and Water Records. Um, just the the magic of changing the gender of the, the singer uh, mm-hmm. on a cover song can do wonders for just changing the arrangement and changing your, your appreciation and your thought process about a song. And I think, uh, yeah, Monique, her voice on this song is just very fun. And yeah, my big my big note was it's just like, it's it's easy to kind of look back at it and kind of make fun of it, but there was just this childish fun sense of that like ska band, that ska sound coming out of it, and just uh, yeah, I, I look back to it kind of with kind of a, a wink and a smile. So cool. Um, it's faster than the original. Yeah, that's all I got. Those <laughs> are my notes. <laughs> It's late and we're getting punchy. Uh, uh, no, yeah, it's uh, no, I, no, no. Okay, no. In all seriousness, I, I, in, I, to be fair, I should critique it a little bit. You know, Ryan, mm-hmm. I'm, I was never. I'm, I'm just not a. I, 
I never liked ska like yeah, that, no, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, even even as big as no, no doubt got, you know, in the in in that mm-hmm. mid '90s period, and they were a Southern California band, so they were all over the place and everything. I still just I didn't really get it. Um, I did develop a quick appreciation of not necessarily ska, but the big band resurgence when a movie like Swingers came out, and then all yeah. of a sudden there was there was a lot of that type of sound. Um, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, those kind of things. So I appreciated that a little bit more than Ska. Um, but, you know, I, this was another another one of those songs where, to me, this version is obviously better than the original because I never understood why the original got popular. I just I just never got it. I, you know, they uh, like the band intentionally dressed like a bunch of redneck hillbillies dressed in overalls, like playing like jugs and washboards and stuff. That was their thing. And I just didn't get the song. So when you played this one, I was like, I don't like the song, but it's better. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's 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 my critique of it. <laughs> nice. All right. And that that really is that's that's a great note to end on. <laughs> no, we, we are we are ending. We are taking this over to Fire Water Records at some point in the near future. And when that comes out, I will make sure that I post links and stuff to it. There will be a link to a YouTube playlist um, of the songs from this episode if anybody wants to listen to them, as well as uh, links to any of the st- other stuff that we had mentioned um, uh, that you can find over at popcultureaffidavit.com. And um, if you want to go talk, uh, see, uh, or see, can't see, it's a podcast. Here, Ryan and Neil talk. Um, check out their stuff on Fire and Water. They do Fire and Water Records, and Ryan does the Cheers cast, which I've been on a couple of times. Um, any last words before we let I let you guys go? Uh, yeah, uh, I've got. I've, I I want to redo my entire list because I thought of a whole bunch of new ones now. <laughs> half of the next part of the episode is just us going to be going through things we forgot to mention last episode. Yeah. So. Absolutely. <laughs> omissions, Absolutely. omissions and corrections. Actually, actually, we, you sh- should be taking bets because we haven't scheduled when we're going to record part two of this, but we should be taking bets on whether or not our locked in lists for part two remain the same or if those change in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, you, you know, I'm looking at my list going, hmm, do I want to swap out this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so. I, I don't think I have nearly enough harmonica in my second act. So <laughs> that's kinda... I'm glad yeah, I noticed that now. So. Find yeah. some blues traveler, man. All right. Yeah. So. And more Bob Dylan. <laughs> yes. Hi, Rob. Um, all right. So thank you guys for coming on. And I'll, I'll see you guys over Fired Water. Um, as far as this show is concerned, in next episode, I am taking part in the JL May crossover by looking at the Brave and the Bold issue. And which guest stars the Teen Titans, among other people. So come back uh, in May for that. Until then, thank you very much for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. 
Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. His name is-